CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Okay, we're ready. Mm-hmm. Your Ben Jarofsky show mm-hmm. for... What, you, good? Mm-hmm. <laughs> Your Ben Jarofsky show for Wednesday, July 24th is just moments away. But before we get into that, we need to thank the following unions for jumping on board and helping bring back the Ben Jarofsky show. First up, it's the International Association of Machinists and Aerospace Workers, Local 126 in District 8, the International Brotherhood of Electrical Workers, Local 9, and the International Union of Operating Engineers, Local 1. 50. Thank you once again to those unions for jumping on board and helping bring back our program. And of course, today's show is brought to you by our good friends at the Chicago Federation of Labor. The Ben Jarofsky Show starts now. It is Wednesday, July 24th, and live from the Chicago Sun-Times Chicago Reader Studio on Racine Avenue... This is the Ben Jarofsky Show. Today on the program, a lot of Mueller testimony. Chicago legendary journalist Monroe Anderson returns to talk Mueller. Author and professor David Ferris is here to talk Mueller. And sometimes obit writer Maureen O'Donnell is here to talk Mueller? No, she's here to talk about obituaries. And now your host, Chicago Reader columnist, Ben Jarofsky. Yeah, hello, everybody. Ben Jarofsky here. Yes, indeed, the doctor is right. We're calling this Mueller Wednesday. <laughs> and here's why. Well, woke up bright and early today, D. What yes, time? And, sir. 10.30? 9 o'clock. Oh, okay. All, right? All right. Had to hear Mueller. Cock-a-doodle-doo. I was up and out of bed. I had my little phone on. I was lying in bed, actually, listening to Mueller. And, uh, of course, Mueller is, as you all know, the special counsel appointed by the Justice Department to investigate alleged crimes of misdemeanors and felonies by the president of the United States, known as Donnie John Trump. The man you saw fit to elect as your president in America. And as you also know, Mueller and his investigators have, uh, after, I don't know, a year or so of investigation, have discovered evidence that Trump and his cohorts were meeting with the Russians to get the dirt on Hillary Clinton. And part of that dirt that they got from Hillary, about Hillary Clinton came from stealing emails from the Democratic computers. No, no, that's got to be a crime. But uh-uh, they're not going to prosecute because I'm scared to prosecute a president. That's number one. Number two, they also uncovered evidence that Donald John Trump, the man you saw fit to elect as your president of the United States, was trying to talk his cohorts and his allies and his White House aides and lawyers into lying, covering up evidence. I would call that obstruction of justice, D. But did they indict? No, no, no. Why? They're afraid. They're afraid to go after the president. I don't blame him. He's a big, powerful guy. He'll write a tweet about you. He'll be scared, hiding under the table. So there's no indictment of Donald John Trump, but there's this big book. Uh-oh. The Mueller Report, which I've read, which lays out the case against uh, Donald John Trump. 
And Mueller's saying, well, you know, I'm not going to indict, but if you want to uh, impeach, go ahead. Well, he doesn't literally say that. Because here's the thing about Mueller, which is most frustrating. The guy is incapable of offering a declarative, straight-up sentence. So if you say, hey, the sky is blue, who say, well, the sky is not not blue, huh? Does that mean the sky is blue? I said enough already. What do you mean? Depends on what your definition of is is. Yes, yes. What your definition of is is and not. And how many knots before it's not not is a knot? I got to go home. I'm lost. (laughs) I'm Mueller. I'm just going to talk in riddles like a Bob Dylan song. Anyway, listen to his testimony today. It was fun and interesting. Uh, I enjoy watching politicians at work. We're going to play some of the excerpts, get Monroe's thoughts on it, and uh, David Ferris's thoughts on it, and Leah's thoughts on it, anybody else. Maybe you can drag Maureen O'Donnell into having an opinion on it, though I don't think we'll be uh, having any luck with that. Um, The interesting thing, of course, the Republicans trying to get Mueller to admit, ah, yeah, we're biased. Yeah, yeah, it's a witch hunt. (laughs) And the Democrats are trying to get Mueller to say, yes, uh, he should be indicted. Yes, he should go to jail. Or yes, there's terrible evidence here. And Mueller's got, uh uh. He's got, I noticed a thing about Mueller, uh, D. You know, we've uh, talked a lot about this down through the months. We listen to politicians uh, in debates, politicians in press conferences, uh, politicians just on, you know, just random interviews. Politicians come into the studio and do the interviews and there's many different forms of evading an answer avoiding uh directly answering a question we talk there's a duck and a dodge right hey, you remember the duck and a dodge where you you know you just sort of say uh change the subject really fast and then uh then go on and answer the question you want to answer there's the deflection which is sort of the same thing where you just deflect to something else i'm by the way but i was accused of that doing that the other night D. oh yeah, really at the white Sox game yeah. yeah a certain somebody wanted me to uh a smoke a certain something and instead of giving him a direct yes or no you know what i did i ducked and dodged i oh, deflected nice. all right and he accused me of, you're deflecting you're like pritzker i hope it was marijuana that's <laughs> what it was I don't, okay. come on guys i haven't smoked since 1981 and i'm not about to start now even if it is legal well not technically until uh what is it, january anyway Went on a tangent there. I forgot where I was going. Muller's, his, what he's really good at, I know there's like two sources. One, his hearing. You notice about Muller? Huh? What? I can't hear. Yeah, huh? Can, can you talk good. up? <laughs> huh? What? He needs closed captioning. Like who, me, me in a movie. <laughs> who said that? <laughs> Muller, I can't. I'm sorry, guys. I just, I can't hear you. I just, I can't hear and the, and the other one is he can't remember. How about that, D? Huh? huh? What? I can't remember. <laughs> I don't know. I can't remember. It's like me the other day, by the way. I must say, I was going to say, I went on a tangent. It's your fault. You put me on the tangent. And then I forgot where I was going when I started, and I dropped the ball on it. When I was talking about young Kenny Davis. Oh, yeah. Remember? Because I was talking yeah, about. Yeah, let's hear that impression of Ken Davis, by the way. Here we go. Fantastic. <laughs> I'll tell you what, Ken Davis always answers a question when you ask him. He's not going to duck. He's not going to dodge. He's not going to say, I can't hear. He's not going to say, I don't remember. He's going to answer the question, right, D? He may say he can't hear. (laughs) What? Uh, Anyway, so no, uh, that's one of his uh, favorite things. And then, of course, uh, his ultimate favorite one. That is not the purview of this investigation. You know, I'm not going to answer that one. You can't force me to answer that one. It was, I'm not going to get into that. Oh, yeah, I'm not going to get into that. Well, he did a few purviews as well. (laughs) Not going to get it. Well, you're you're here to answer a question. Not going to get into that. Very frustrating. Very frustrating uh, for me because I wanted uh, a declarative sentence 
on Donald John Trump's role in what we all know went down. Computers were hacked. The Russians stole information from the Democrats, and they used it against Hillary Clinton. And then there was clear evidence that the president ordered his aides to lie or distort or deceive investigators. How is that not obstruction? How is that not a crime? Oh, not going to say. Going to dodge, going to duck, going to mumble, going to... I can't hear a thing you're saying. You know what? They need closed captions for Mueller the next time he comes before Congress. Anyway... The Republicans, I'm sure, are really happy. I haven't seen a guy, a guy get away with such crimes since O.J. Simpson. Hey, Republicans, while you're patting yourself on the back, you're playing the role of Johnny Cochran. We got a great show today, everybody. Monroe Anderson will be here in the studio. He's ready to pick apart the Mueller investigation. Also, he's got Epstein updates, uh, and uh, he's going to give us the insight on Trump going to bat for ASAP. Hunty, you're a huge ASAP fan, right? ASAP Rocky? Yeah, yeah. Monroe is big in the rap music. Did you know that? Yeah. I did not know that. He's either. a hipper and a hopper. Uh, and David Ferris will be here. We love talking politics with David Ferris. He's a Roosevelt University political science professor and author of the book, It's Time to Fight Dirty. How Democrats can build a lasting majority in American politics. Uh, yesterday, we talked about uh, Nate Cohn, the New York Times uh, reporter, who uh, came up with the uh, the notion that Donald John Trump would probably lose by more votes this time around than he did in 2016 in terms of popular vote. But be- his analysis, Cohn's analysis, uh, shows that Trump is ahead uh, in the swing vote in the swing states, and so he'll probably be reelected. Uh, and David Ferris has taken a deep dive into all that, uh, uh, into all the polling and has said, Cohn doesn't know what he's talking about. He's already written an article about it, D, so we'll be talking about that, uh, the election ahead and the strategies that the Democrats should employ if they want to beat uh, Donald Trump with David Ferris, Roosevelt University political science professor. And then uh, we're going to have uh, Marina Donald be dropping by uh, to talk about some of the great obituaries she wrote uh, this last week or so. She is one of the great writers in the city of Chicago, writes for this uh, my beloved bright one, the Chicago Sun-Times. And uh, she wrote uh, two excellent pieces. One about uh, Michael Flug, somebody's worth uh, talking about and knowing who is an archivist uh, here at the Woodson Library in uh, on the south side of Chicago. And Lois Willie just died. Lois Willie's a great reporter, great writer, great editorialist. Uh, for the Daily News, I believe she worked for the Sun-Times, and the Tribune, so she just passed away. Uh, Maureen O'Donnell will be in talking uh, about some of the great Chicagoans, and uh, and plenty of political discussion, local, national, state, get down to it. But first, the man, the myth, the legend, with the news, Dr. D. How's it going, everybody? Name's Dennis. It's the middle of the day. Let's talk about the national news happening at the moment. The Mueller testimony. That was working directly for the Hillary Clinton campaign and the Democrat National Committee. They produced the dossier, so they paid Steele, who then went out and got the dossier. And I know you don't want to ask, answer any dossier questions, uh, so I'm not going there. But your report mentions Natalia Vlesnitskaya 65 times. She meets in the Trump Tower. It's this infamous Trump Tower meeting. It's in your report. You've heard many of the Democrats refer to it today. The meeting was shorter than 20 minutes, I believe. Is that correct? I think uh, 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 what we have in our report reflects it was about that length. All right, that's live, actually, (laughs) happening right now. Uh, That's classic Mueller, I uh, think. uh, It's in our report. uh, What? uh, (laughs) 
Where am I? Huh? <laughs> uh, I can't right. hear you. So Robert Mueller testified before Congress for hearing number one. What you just heard was hearing number two. Two okay. hearings in one day. What did we do to deserve this? Who is that? Uh, Couldn't tell you. Okay. Couldn't tell you. Let's right. listen again, though. Huh? Would it surprise you that the Clinton campaign dirty ops arm met with Natalia Vasilskaya oh, more times than the Trump campaign did? Well, this is an area that I'm not going to get into, as I indicated at the uh, outset. Yeah. <laughs> Did you ever interview Glenn Simpson? I'm again. I'm going to pass on that. All right. A lot of ducking <laughs> and dodging, baby. Yeah. Well, that uh, we, we hear a lot about this. Can't wait to get Monroe's thoughts on this. This is the Republicans who want to look away from any crime that Donald John Trump did and try to concoct a crime that they could possibly stick to Hillary uh, Hillary Clinton. You notice that uh, the dirty ops campaign of Hillary Clinton, and so uh, they're going to be talking a lot about the Steele dossier. There were so many questions put at that, as though somehow or other uh, this entire investigation. There was nothing resembling, uh, you know, uh, a, a, a reason why the investigation went down. It was just all based on a dossier by uh, a uh, an operative in England named uh, Steele. And so that's what the Republicans are determined to do and uh, try to dismiss the entire Mueller report, the entire investigation as just the uh, what the byproduct of Hillary Clinton dirty ops. So while hearing number two is taking place, let's unpack hearing number one, shall we? So obviously the Democrats and Republicans had completely different strategies in speaking with the former special counsel today in regards to his evidence found in his Russia election collusion investigation. The Democrats plan, well, that's have Mueller confirm and repeat the evidence and statements found in that gigantic book that Ben always brags about reading all the time, The Mueller Report. Uh, is that correct, Robert Mueller? That's correct. Okay, great. Thank you. <laughs> and their plan is also to remind everyone that's watching that Mueller is a very credible guy, not a lunatic. Is that correct, Mr. Mueller? That's correct. <laughs> By the way, it's my new favorite clip. Uh, Mr. Muller, you seem a little uh, tired this morning. Did you? Uh, are you? Are you tired? That's correct. Oh, okay. Really? Uh, are the Bulls going to win the championship this year, Mr. Muller? That's correct. Oh, okay. Whoa, oh, yeah. your guy. So I tried finding audio of the Democrats during the testimony. Couldn't find any, but boy, I got a lot from the Republicans. <laughs> okay. Good Lord. And as far as the Republican uh, right, strategy yeah. okay. in this, by the way, in grilling Mr. Mueller, well, that's easy. Get Mueller to admit that he hates Donald Trump and always has. Is that correct, Mr. Mueller? That's correct. Okay. Awesome. <laughs> Wait a minute. <laughs> oh, he's leaving. Hold on. Said in the day in response. Okay, that's CNN. We don't want to play their audio. Anyway. All right. So uh, uh, I guess he's, I guess they're maybe taking a recess. Mueller resumes testimony before Congress. Maybe they're taking a recess. He's exhausted, all right? Are you exhausted? That's correct. Oh, okay. Well, take a break. Take a break. Uh, you seem uh, like a chocolate milk guy. Is that right? That's correct. Okay. Yeah. Take a chocolate milk. That's fine. All right. Uh, and uh, so. Uh, uh, will you be seeing Once Upon a Time in America? this week <laughs> he loves that movie uh, <laughs> all right so let's hear the republican responses here uh first up oh this guy's a piece of work louis gomer <laughs> yeah, the guy from texas oh yeah. man belongs to mayberry here we go listen now uh, regarding collusion or conspiracy <laughs> you didn't find evidence of uh, any agreement i'm quoting you hmm. among the trump campaign officials and any russia linked individuals to interfere with our u.s election correct correct so you also note yeah. in the report that an element of any of those obstructions you referenced requires a corrupt state of mind, correct? Corrupt intent, correct. Right. And if somebody knows 
they did not conspire with anybody from Russia to affect the election. And they see the big Justice Department with people that hate that person coming after them. And then a special counsel appointed who hires dozen or more people that hate that person. And he knows he's innocent. He's not corruptly acting in order to see that justice is done. What he's doing is not obstructing justice. He is pursuing justice. And the wow. fact that you Gentlemen's ran it out two years means Gentlemen's you perpetuated injustice. I take Gentlemen's your question. time has expired. The witness may answer the question. All right, round one over. Wait, time out. What was the question? <laughs> it was a tough one. They gave a speech, but there was no question. That was another thing I noticed. I mean, Mueller was like, what's the question? Which, by the way, I, you know, I could relate to because Democrats and Republicans, they would just start talking. They want to get their talking points in D. In that case, the talking point was that the uh, Donald Trump and his aides are as innocent and pure as freshly fallen snow. And the Democrats are mean and dastardly. That was the point. Okay, D? That was the de- And poor Mueller's like, what? <laughs> First of all, I couldn't follow where the guy was going. Then you, you got to have some kind of thing answer that response to the question. But if there is no question, what's the question? Uh, <laughs> all right, so that was Gomert's uh, take. Gomert, what, what a character. Oh, wait, there's one. Oh, by the way, David Gomert, uh, for all the movie buffs out there, if there's ever a movie about David Gomert, uh, David Keckner would be a great person to play. Which one's David Keckner? Bald head. What movie was Comedian, he Comedian, comedy actor. Can't really think of any movies yeah. he's in in particular. You yeah. would know him if you saw him, okay. though. Okay. But anyway. Gomert, man. All right, so we got... Do your Gomert imitation. Oh, now, come on. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds like Alligator Bob. Yeah, Alligator... By the way, did he get trounced? Okay, oh, that's sorry, what, enough Alligator oh, yeah, talk. I like it. All right, so that was Louie Gomert. Up next, Republican North Dakota Rep. Kelly Armstrong. Boy, he was <laughs> feeling himself today. Mother, this isn't just about you being able to vouch your team. This is about knowing that the day you accepted this role, you had to be aware, no matter what this report concluded, half of the country was going to be scheduled, skeptical of your team's findings. And that's why we have recusal mm-hmm. laws that define bias and perceived bias for this very reason. 28 United States Code 528 specifically lists not just political conflict of interest, but the appearance of political conflict of interest. It's just simply not enough that you vouch for your team. The interests of justice demand that no perceived bias exists. I can't imagine a single prosecutor or judge that I have ever appeared in front of would be comfortable with these circumstances where over half of the prosecutorial team had a direct relationship to the opponent of the person being investigated. Well, let me one other fact that I, I put on the table, and that is we hired 19 lawyers over the period of time. Of those 19 lawyers, 14 of them were transferred from elsewhere in the Department of Justice. Only five came from outside. And so half of them have... had a direct relationship, political or personal, with the opponent of the person you were investigating. And that's my point. I wonder if not a single word in this entire report was changed, but rather the only difference was we switched Hillary Clinton and President Trump. Oh, oh my God. Just imagine that. If we switched Hillary Clinton to Donald John Trump, could, oh boy, what was the dude from Texas? Gomer. Could you imagine Gomer if it was Hillary Clinton's people who had met with the Russians? If it was Hillary's Clinton, Clinton's people who took that dirt that the Russians got from the uh, computers and spread it here near and far? If it was Hillary Clinton who was telling her people, hey, lie, distort, deceive. How about this, Gomer? If it was Hillary Clinton's people that were paying off, uh, what, 
strippers who had an affair with Bill Clinton? Could you imagine what the Republicans would be doing there? Oh, my God. Good God. By the way, this is David Kecker. I'm going to jump up and show you real quick. Oh, the okay. The guy looks like Gomer. All right. This, right to quote D. Great moment of podcasting here, ladies. Oh, yeah. I've seen that guy in a lot of... Yep. Show it. Uh, yeah, oh, okay. <laughs> Look up David Keckner. You're on the line. I can almost hear his voice in my uh, right? in my mind. Yeah. All right. So that was, uh, what was that guy's name? Kelly Armstrong. What you think of Kelly Armstrong there? Huh? Would you I invite just, him to dinner any day? No. Soon? What, no? A okay. what a guy. Oh, so unfair for Donald Trump. By the way, and he opened up by saying half of the country would be skeptical. Uh, negatory, sir. Actually, less than half of the country voted for Donnie John Trump. So I think most people... People in this country, just if you just asked them, yeah, he was up to no good. Yeah, he was colluding with the Russians. Yeah, he took those emails. People know that. Then you have the, then the issue gets in. Well, how far do we push it? And that's where Americans, you know, it's like, I don't know. It's it's just so unsettling. I don't know. You know, they get that. I'm afraid that American. I'm afraid to go too far. Uh, but yeah, I would say that uh, not half the country's skeptical. You know, like the base, your base. Well, I wouldn't even call them skeptical. They're just outraged that anybody would investigate Donnie John Trump. All right. So we heard Louis Gohmert. We heard <laughs> Kelly Armstrong. Step aside, fellers. It's time for this guy that I've seen on uh, TV too much in the last few weeks. It's this guy, Jim Jordan, Republican oh, yeah. here. He's going after uh, Mueller as well. Let's hear from Jimmy J. Jimmy J. <laughs> now, here's the good news. Okay. Here's the good news. All right. All right. Trump president was falsely accused of conspiracy. The FBI does a 10-month investigation, and James Comey, when we deposed him a year ago, told us at that point they had nothing. You do a 22-month investigation. At the end of that 22 months, you find no conspiracy. And what's the Democrats want to do? They want to keep investigating. Wait, that's good news? They want to keep going. Maybe a better course of action, maybe a better course of action is to figure out how the false accusations started. Ooh, here we go. Maybe it's to go back and actually figure out why Joseph Nipson was lying to the FBI. And here's the good news. Okay. Here's the good news. All right, finally. That's exactly what Bill Barr is doing. <laughs> thank goodness for that. That's exactly what the Attorney General and John Durham are doing. They're going to find out why we went through this three-year three saga and get to the bottom of it. Time of the right. gentleman is... Wrap it up, Jim. Jim Jordan. I kept waiting for the good news. What's the good news? Yeah, Barr's going to do an investigation of the investigation. All right, folks? Yeah. The, the, they watch. They're going to go so hard at the Hillary. They're going to keep coming after Hillary, Hillary Clinton, who wasn't even allowed to, to be the president, even though she got most of the votes. They're going to figure out some way to blame this whole thing on Hillary Clinton. That's the good news. Yeah, okay, Jordan. It's hard to see the, uh, the evidence, Jordan, when you get your eyes closed. That's correct. Yeah. All right, and the big takeaway yeah. from hearing number one, hearing number two taking place now, uh, and the big moment was thanks to other Republicans. Oops. And one in particular, a Colorado Republican by the name of Ken Buck. Okay, Kenny B. All right, Kenny B. <laughs> he had uh, Mueller confirm that the president of the United States, Donald J. Trump, could be charged with obstruction of justice after he left office. Let's hear from Ken Buck. You charged the president with a crime after he left office. Yes. You believe that he committed, you could charge the president of the United States with obstruction of justice after he left office. Yes. 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 Yeah. I don't, is, is Buck outraged by that? I get this feeling that, wow, this is just an outrage. This is, <laughs> hey, Buck, if he obstructed justice, and it sure looks like he obstructed justice, he should be charged. I don't know. Just saying. Okay. That's correct. All right. 
All right, so there you go. Uh, that's hearing number one. Uh, we'll be keeping you posted on hearing number two as today's program rolls along. I'm sure Monroe Anderson's just ready to riff on this as well. <laughs> we got to play those tapes for Monroe, get his response to uh, Jordan and your uh, your guy. Uh, what's his name from Texas? Uh, but the, the Gomert? Gomert, yeah. Gomert. Louis Gomert. Oh, yeah. Louis Gomert. So yeah. uh, before we get into all things Mueller like we've been doing here, we're going to take a brief break. And after that break, we're going to find out what's going on locally. We're going to find out what else is news. So people... People don't go anywhere. You're listening to the Ben Jarofsky show. Read the Chicago reader to get up to speed on what's what in Chicago culture, food, arts and entertainment, weekly concert listings, weekly event listings, the environment, travel. I can continue, but you get the point. And for all of you, Chicago political junkies, raw weekly columns on real city politics from Maya Dukmasova and our very own Ben Jarofsky, the Chicago reader free to the public in newsstands throughout the city and online at chicagoreader.com. Read it now and be a more informed Chicagoan. Today's Ben Jarofsky Show was brought to you in part by Chicago Architecture Center. Discover the breadth and majesty of Chicago's architecture on a Chicago Architecture Center bus tour. From bungalows to Bauhaus, our expert docents will share the fascinating stories behind our city's architecture. Book your tour at architecture.org slash tours. Now, if you'll excuse me, I'm actually on a bus tour right now. Oh, my. Look at that wonderful piece of architecture. Get a special discount for Illinois residents from July 15th to August 15th. All Illinois residents get 50% off select walking tours. Visit architecture.org slash IL dash resident. Welcome back to the Ben Jarofsky Show, live from the Chicago Sun-Times. Yes, indeed, we are live from the Chicago <laughs> Sun-Times, the Chicago Reader, Chicago Sun-Times studio, I should add. All right. Remember yesterday, we had little problems there. BGA with their story. The Chicago Sun. It is a joint program. Don't get okay. me upset about that again, okay? I just <laughs> got That was it. the Kenny Davis thing. Can I just go back to the Kenny Davis? That's why I mentioned him in the first place. And you distracted me with, with the request to do an imitation of young Ken Davis. Oh. And the, the point is, is that the BGA wrote that story about uh, the uh, falsehood <clears throat> Uh, uttered by Susanna Mendoza on this show. And I said, I felt like Ken Davis because it was on Ken Davis's show where Lori Lightfoot made her comments about the fraternal order of police or the police, not the the police department, policemen allegedly uh, taking sick leave days. I can't remember what the exact uh, allegation was. Uh, and uh, everybody was going around the Ken Davis show. It was on the Ken Davis show. And member Ken said he, he was a little embarrassed and uncomfortable that uh, he had a, such a prominent role uh, in that revelation. I, on the other hand, was just really relieved that they spelled my name correctly uh, in this story. Yeah, so good job by the BGA and the spelling there. All right, that's why I mentioned Ken well, Davis. Let's hear that impression one more time. Hot damn, that's good. No words said, but still a good Young impression. Kenneth will be coming in, I think, next week. Yeah. Friday. I can't remember which. It's Friday. Okay. All right. We're about to find out what's going on locally. The brain on bread. It's time for what else is news. And, well, it's a follow-up on the story that's been following our mayor since she became the mayor. It's time for another installment of A Mayor and Her Alderman. <laughs> <laughs> oh, boy. Lori Lightfoot and these aldermen, I tell you. The Ooh. following comes from the Chicago Sun-Times and the one and only Fran the Woe Man Spielman. In, 
one. <laughs> a mayor and her alderman. It's a good one, man. It's a hit show. It's going around in Chicago. Man, doctor, I tell you, he comes up with this stuff every day, ladies and gentlemen. Indicted alderman Edward Burke, of which ward, Ben? 14th. Come oh, on. Huge dork, guys. He has a choice to make in 90 days now that the city council oh. has unanimously approved the latest in a seemingly endless string of ethics reforms. The city council meeting was this afternoon in Chicago, by the way. The revised ordinance championed by Mayor Lightfoot states, quote, no official or employee may derive any income, compensation, or other tangible benefit from providing opinion evidence as an expert against the interests of the city in any judicial or quasi-judicial proceeding before any administrative agency or court. Now, I'll go ahead and speak on behalf of the people listening here. Ben, what the hell was that? <laughs> yeah, man, that one is, uh, wow. You know, again, you know, I was hard on Mueller for uh, being unable to say something uh, straightforward and right out there that you all understand it. And, uh, correct. Yeah, that is correct, Mueller. Uh, uh, the, that, the city did it there. Okay, here's the situation. Uh, Ed Burke, one more time, everybody, has a property tax appeal of business. Uh, he's also the chairman uh, or was the chairman of the city council finance committee. He's also a voting member of the city council, alderman of the city council from the 14th Ward. As chairman of the finance committee, he oversees the approval of every single contract and uh, every single budget, every single TIF deal. All right. So uh, his role is supposedly to be looking out for the fiduciary interests of the taxpayers. Love that word. I know. I love fiduciary. Fiduciary. Uh, and uh, but uh, in his role as a property tax lawyer, he's looking out for the best interests of his client. So if he gets, let's say Leah hires him to get her taxes reduced, if he's successful in getting her assessment lower and she pays less in taxes, that means all the rest of the taxpayers pay more money. So he's looking out for the interests of his client, in this case, Leah, but all the rest of the taxpayers, including Dennis, me, Brian, the brain who uh, oversees the entire operation here, Monroe Anderson, who will be coming in, David Ferris will be coming in, Maureen O'Donnell, who's be coming in, all these other taxpayers lose. So instead of looking out for the taxpayer, he's looking out for his client. He's also looking out for himself because the client is paying him. Okay, that's what we call a conflict of interest. It's existed for years and years and years, D. People like me have been railing and ranting about it. I go back to articles I wrote in the 90s on this subject. <clears throat> the city of Chicago's attitude for most of that time was, what do you got to be? Why are you complaining so much, man? Huh? I got my garbage picked up. I'm happy. Well, things have changed here in the city of Chicago. Was that an impression of a neighbor? <laughs> Just the general public there. Oh, okay. There was a neighbor once I had who was like, I... I know how to get the snow removed. Okay? Oh, yeah? I, I get, he'd like drop his voice. We'd meet on the sidewalk. I know the alderman. Uh, guy, you're supposed to get your snow removed because you play, paid taxes. Did you ever think of that? No. I know the alderman. That's the Chicago yeah, creeping mentality. me out. The, I, the impression <laughs> of that guy's creepy. I know the alderman. Please okay. stop. Don't worry about it. We're going to get our snow removed. Anyway, so back to Burke. So finally, we had, I don't know what happened in the city of Chicago this last election. Suddenly people woke up and decided we are not going to put up with these conflicts of interest anymore. He caught Tony Preckwinkle off guard. Uh, Lori Lightfoot running as an outsider who was not the recipient of these, uh, the beneficiary, I should say, of these conflicts of interest, made it a campaign. And guess what? Part of her campaign and she won. So now she's following through on it. And so finally, it seems as though the city council is going to prevent aldermen from having this kind of direct conflict of interest where they are individually benefiting from giving, what, advice or representation 
representing taxpayers or uh, uh, before uh, like the uh, Cook County Assessor or the Cook County Board of Review to get their taxes lowered uh, if that works against the larger interests of the city of Chicago. So about time, I say. The Sun-Times article continues, the alderman who stands accused in a 14-count racketeering indictment of using the city as a, quote, criminal enterprise to squeeze businesses to hire his law firm has been forced to choose. Stop handling property tax appeals, divest himself from Clafter and Burke, or step down as alderman. If he does, if he does none of those, he would face daily fines up to $5,000 for each offense. Oh. Now, Ben, get this. You're going to find this hard to believe burke could not be reached for comment on his intentions uh really was he does it say i I, i've been in the studio so i don't know if he's at the meeting was it does it say if he was at the meeting Uh, i don't know yeah uh so wow that's that's putting the pressure on him again he has to step down from the law firm uh, or step down from the city council what a choice i don't know which one he's would want to make in that case because he probably makes more money from being the lawyer than he does from being the uh alderman uh, so he's a tough choice ahead of him. By the way, one of his clients, like to point out, uh, was uh, the Trump building. All right. The Trump family, uh, owners of the Trump building. Well, actually, I don't know who technically owns the Trump building. It's got Trump's name splashed on it, as uh, you like to remind me every time we go buy it on the brown line, <laughs> um, which is it's really hard to miss anyway. Uh, it, it, Ed Burke represented Donald Trump. How about that, folks? How much? That's how much things have changed in this town in politics, really, just in the last uh, couple of years. Uh, Ed Burke openly represented the the Trump building. Uh, every year, he would go before the Cook County Assessor, the county, to get their assessments lowered, arguing that they were they shouldn't have to pay uh, higher taxes. They should get a, a reduction in their taxes because they can't fill the commercial spaces uh, that, that are vacant on the ground floor the lower levels of the trump tower and i have always argued that part of the reason they can't fill those spaces is that no reputable person would want to rent there because it's got trump's name splashed on the front of the building so that if they want uh to get a uh, reduction uh, they should take be forced to take that name off the building and then let's see if they can rent uh the uh if they can rent their vacant space and um uh, of course uh, nobody listened to me in that argument either the Cook County assessor didn't buy my argument either. Why did anyone uh, listen to you? I don't know why. But uh, so in that, but, but for, for two years he did that. And finally, Trump became such a bad name in the city of Chicago, and, and, uh, particularly in Hispanic or Latino communities, uh, because of his border policies, that Ed Burke was forced to drop Trump as a client, drop the Trump Tower uh, as a client. And uh, I don't know, maybe that was part of the reason why he was uh, reelected in, uh, what was it, 2019, just this last February, he was reelected, even though he was facing criminal charges. He was just uh, the subject of a criminal investigation. Or though it could have been the typical attitude of the Chicago voters, D, who said, I, I know the alderman. I got my street. Oh, that's that neighbor again. <laughs> I got Oh, that creepy neighbor that Ben has. No collusion. No So anyway, uh, that is Ed Burke. He's being forced to choose. All right, the article continues here. Looks like Monroe is uh, making his way up to the building, so we'll finish this article out here. Alderman Patrick Daly-Thompson. Ben, which word? 
11th. Come on. My God. (laughs) Hanging out with (laughs) nephew and grandson of Chicago mayor said the new ordinance poses no such conflict for him. He handles property tax appeals, but only outside the city. Alderman Ray Lopez, who I know a certain guest isn't a fan of. Alderman Ray Lopez said the language does not go nearly far enough. It's Ricky Hinton, by the way, that guest. At At Wednesday City Council meeting, he introduced an ordinance that would prohibit all outside employment and mandate that aldermen serve their constituents full time. Oh, so wow, Raylo, who was sort of an ally of Ed Burke's, taking the even more, uh, that, that is a good argument. With the aldermen make, I think, $114,000 a year, D, I'm doing it off the top of my head. Uh, should they be prohibited from having any outside employment, even like driving an Uber or a Lyft? I mean, should they just be prohibited and forced to work full time? As an alderman, I think that's too extreme. How about that? I just think that if an alderman like wants to have a side job that doesn't conflict with what he or she does as an alderman, he or she should be allowed to do it. A side hustle alderman. A side hustle alderman. But clearly, running a property tax appeal business uh, in the city of Chicago, representing the interest of downtown commercial owners, getting them uh, getting them reductions in their taxes, which forced the taxes of everybody else to go up, that would be a conflict of interest. And I don't think the that the uh, ordinance that forces uh, um, aldermen to recuse themselves from votes go far enough, particularly in the case of Ed Burke. He would say, well, I didn't vote on this measure. Uh, and then, but that, you know, it's still, he's still a very influential alderman and that, that he uh, oversees the, the flow of legislation. So I don't think the recusal goes far enough. I think, I think we should outlaw aldermen, prohibit aldermen from having property tax businesses, uh, property tax appeal businesses in the city of Chicago. The ordinance approved today by a 50 to zero vote. Also, 50 to zero? 50 well, to zero. Well, then had to be there and he had to vote for it. All right. 50 to zero? That's correct. Okay. <laughs> And it also empowers Inspector Joe Ferguson to enforce his own subpoenas, grants him full auditing and investigatory oversight over the city council, and authorizes investigations up to five years after an offense occurs instead of just two years after an alleged violation. It raises the maximum fine for, quote, high-level ethics violations to $5,000, up from the $2,000 recently levied against Burke, uh, though the Board of Ethics had recommended $20,000, the $500 limit. Uh, the $500 limit for low-level violations would double to $1,000, and it broadens the definition of lobbyists to include nonprofits, but waives their registration fees and pushes the effective date to January 1. Only those, quote, paid or otherwise compensated would be required to register. Yeah, it's getting pretty confusing out there, but the bottom line is this. In my humble opinion, aldermen should not be property tax lawyers okay that would just be number one thing that i would do and i don't think aldermen should be lobbyists either d they should have to drop their lobbying uh, businesses even though well, we're not lobbying in the chicago city city council we're lobbying downstate well conflict of interest like businesses coming to you uh, asking you to lobby on their behalf i think that aldermen uh, should get out of the lobbying game at least while they're sitting aldermen so uh, it's about time that this legislation took place. I'm not sure it's going 
going to uh, eradicate all corruption in the city of Chicago. Corruption, of course, has been around a long time and uh, it'll take many different forms. But uh, I think it's a good start. So good for the, the city of Chicago. Let's give the voters the credit for this one, D, because they're the ones who sort of woke up on this issue in this last election and elected uh, Lori Lightfoot uh, largely because they wanted to change. So there you are. The latest installment of A Mayor and Her Alderman. Love that show. And now you'll have an answer the next time someone asks you, hey, what else is news? All right, let me tell you something. Lori Lightfoot. Okay. Ed Burke. And Robert Mueller. All agree. You did a great job. Give yourself a raise. Take it out of petty cash. We'll be right back with Monroe Anderson after this. Playing now at Steppenwolf Theater, the world premiere of Ms. Black for President. It's inspired by the true, that's true as in it really happened, T-R-U-E story of Joan Jett Black, America's first drag queen presidential candidate. You know who created it, D? No. It was created by Tony nominee Tina Landau. Oh. And you know who else created it? No. Oscar winner Terrell Alvin McCraney. You know him, Moonlight. Oh, oh yeah. yeah. For tickets, visit Steppenwolf.org. That's Steppenwolf, like the rock group from the 60s, Hang tight, millennials. (laughs) The Ben Drosky Show is supported by the Northwestern Summer Writers Conference. Now in its 15th year, the three-day conference held in Chicago features a diverse array of workshops, speakers, discussions, and readings. Learn more at sps.northwestern.edu slash writers. Welcome back to the Ben Jarofsky Show. Ben, get over Monroe's shirt. Well, Live from the Chicago Sun-Times. Every now and then, somebody comes into the studio wearing something that I'm immediately jealous that I don't own. And Monroe Anderson is wearing this super cool, like, Hawaiian shirt. As soon as he walked in, I'm like, I want that shirt. So anyway, nice shirt. Did you buy it or did Joyce buy it for you? Oh, Joyce does a, <laughs> Joyce does a shop for Joyce. <laughs> no. I bought it. Oh, see there? You know, I was stereotyping you because you're a man. I figured you were like me. You couldn't shop and you yeah. your wife to shop. But yeah. no, you're... Uh, uh, you're the only loser here. Now, <laughs> it's funny because during the break, people could see it on the live stream. Uh, he's wearing a shirt and Ben asked Monroe, man, is that reefer on his shirt? <laughs> Wait, people heard that? No, we're, they could see his shirt. Oh, though. yeah. Well, no, I just... I, I asked him if it was reefer or uh, a palm tree and it's... Ben, ben is counting the days down to January 1. Apparently. Actually, that is not. First of all, I just have to put point this out here. It is January 1. But I was at that White Sox game the other day, and I have to tell you this, Monroe, in the parking lot of White Sox Park. Yes, indeed. People were indulging before it was January 1. Contact high time. <laughs> Man, I, I, you know, people were trying to get me to do it, but I wouldn't do it, Monroe, because I've just stopped. I haven't done it since 1980 or 81. Anyway, it's a great shirt. But we you have tried to- it, but you didn't inhale. <laughs> like your boy, Billy C. Uh, I do not inhale. All right, Monroe, so much to talk about about with Mueller's um, testimony today, if you call whatever he did testimony. But Leah, our editor, uh, posed a very good question when we were at break. And I said, you know what? Uh, I want you to pose that question to Monroe Anderson and get his response to it. So, Leah, take it away. Um, it seems like Democrats and Republicans have completely different interpretations of the Mueller report. Like Democrats say, oh, this is evidence that um, Trump has committed wrongdoing. And Republicans say, no, it's evidence that he didn't. And Mueller won't even say that 
what it's evidence for. So why do people have completely different interpretations? Monroe Anderson. Trump is a liar <laughs> and the Republicans a lie. Okay, part one. Uh, with Mueller, he's trying to walk that fine line mm-hmm. between being objective and fair and not lying at the same time. See, that's the part that the notion of objectivity, you just raised that point, objective and fair. Right. I mean, he is a special counsel. He issued a report. He has actions that have been, that he has laid out that what Trump did and what Trump's aides did. Right. I don't think it's being uh, unfair to clearly state whether those are crimes. I think that's just evasion, ducking, and dodging. I don't, the notion of being objective and fair, I don't know how that applies to this as opposed to an evasion. Well, you haven't heard part two, (laughs) the Intel um, Committee. That's going on right now. And we have a new improved Mueller at the stand now. Oh, see, that's happening as we speak. That's happening as they're talking about Russia. Ah. And he said it had to be be drawn out of him. Mm -hmm. But he said that the Russians helped Trump, that um, Trump um, welcomed that assistance. He went through, they went through a whole thing, which Mm -hmm. basically said that Trump was not quite exonerated of this and that Russia is a major problem that's not being handled. All right, that's happening right now. Yes. Uh, but to, So it was quite different because this morning he was ducking and dodging. He's trying to be fair, objective and fair. Fair, and by the way, in air quotes. Yes, right. Exactly. Because I don't even know what objectivity means in relation to the Mueller report. It is It either is or it isn't. The, the, Donald Trump either asked his lawyers uh, to lie or he didn't ask his lawyers to lie. Uh, Mueller says he did ask them. So I don't know how it's being objective and fair not to clearly state that uh, when you're caught, when you're asked about it. And that's, I think, what Leah's getting at. Yeah. yeah. No, he was a problem this morning. He was way too cautious. He was very boring. He's more, he's more animated now. Although he's not tap dancing or, yeah. or, or uh, hip hop it or anything like that, but he's more animated and um, um, guys, Schiffer, who's the who's the head of it? Schiffer or uh, Sawell? Which one? Who's the head of the House Intel Committee? Anyway, they're much better than um, Nate, Nate Nadler was. Oh, Jerry more, Nadler, yeah. yeah, the congressman, yeah, yeah. Uh, he's, he's much better. It's um, one, yeah, one of the California. Anyway, the head of it. I'm blanking on his name right now. All right, let's. Uh, we're gonna have some fun with this. We have some of the Republican uh, congressmen and their interrogation of uh, Mueller. Love to hear your response. Uh, so we can play uh, D. Which one are you gonna do first? Uh, well, yeah, I'll let, we'll uh, spin the wheel and uh, well, any one of way. them is hilarious for Monroe's response. But we do have updates on the uh, second hearing going okay. on now. It says here uh, that Mueller has confirmed in response to a question from Democratic Representative Eric Swalwell, Swalwell. that the special counsel's yeah. investigation was hampered by Trump campaign officials' use of encryption communications. Uh, Mueller replied, uh, "We believe that to be the case." 
Uh, actually, it looks like we have audio here from Swalwell. Oh, he got it, yeah. We believe that to be the case. Right. That's just, there you go. Yes would be better, you know. Yes! All right, here's Swalwell. The president's campaign chairman, Paul Manafort, lied about meetings that he had with someone with ties to Russian intelligence. Is that correct? That's, that's true. And your investigation was hampered by Trump campaign officials' use of encryption communications. Is that right? We believe that to be the case. <laughs> you also believe to be the case that your investigation was hampered by the deletion of electronic messages. Is that correct? It would be, yes. And generally, any uh, case would be if uh, those kinds of communications are, are used. For example, you noted that Deputy Campaign Manager Rick Gates who shared internal campaign polling data with the person with ties to Russian intelligence at the direction of Manafort, that Mr. Gates deleted those communications on a daily basis. Is that right? I, I take your word. I, I, I say I don't know specifically, but if it's in the report, then I support it. That's right, Director. It's volume one, page 136. Thank you. In addition to that, other information yeah. was inaccessible because your office determined it was protected by attorney-client privilege. Is that correct? That is true. That would include that you do not know whether communications between Donald Trump and his personal attorneys, Jay Sekulow, Rudy Giuliani, and others discourage witnesses from cooperating with the government. Is that right? I'm not going to talk to that. <laughs> See, okay, uh, this gets to what Leah was asking. What the Democrats are doing is literally like going to the Mueller report yeah. Reading the Mueller report exactly, and, he, then, and he refused to read it. They 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 ask him on more occasions than one. Yeah, to um, read it, and he says, um, "I prefer you read it." Yeah, because he doesn't want to be on tape reading his reading, report, his, reading which his has report. his name on it. Right, uh, and then they. But he doesn't want to be a prop for the Democrats, and what, there's there's one key component here mm -hmm. that um, is the elephant in the room. Mueller is a Republican. Yeah. And he's been a Republican. He didn't get converted. He's not, he's not a never-Trumper. Um, and so he is what he is, a Republican. Yeah, he's a Republican, and uh, uh, he also is determined, and, th and, th and your point's a good one, Monroe, he's determined <coughs> not to get in the middle of of the Democratic and Republican squabble over Trump, and that enables uh, the Republicans to do what Leah well, said, the, put a completely different spin on his own yeah, report. Yeah, but that's how, that's him, period. This is his 89th time um, appearing before the House or the Senate in a, in a, in a hearing, 89. And they have tapes of him going back for years, and he's always basically been the same not very not very talkative not very emotive mm -hmm. um pretty boring yeah uh i don't know what just before we go to this tape do you think it was a good idea by the for the democrats to call him as a uh witness this morning i thought it was a disaster um hearing what he said so far in this one it's going to work out. All right. It's going to work out. And, and we got more updates here, too. Uh, Mueller described Trump's 2016 praise of WikiLeaks as, at the very least, problematic. 
Hey, representative out of Illinois, Mike Quigley, uh, documented the many instances of Trump applauding the website after it leaked emails from the Democratic National Committee during the 2016 campaign. Uh, we have audio of that as well. Take it away, Mike Quigley. Just came out, WikiLeaks. I love WikiLeaks. Donald Trump, October 10th, 2016. This WikiLeaks stuff is unbelievable. It tells you the inner heart. You got to read it. Donald Trump, October 12th, 2016. This WikiLeaks is like a treasure trove. Donald Trump, October 31st, 2016. Boy, I love reading those WikiLeaks. Donald Trump, November 4th, 2016. Any of those quotes disturb you, Mr. Director? <laughs> I'm not certain I would say. Uh, How do you react to that? Uh, well, uh, it's probably tr problematic is, is an understatement oh, in terms God. of what it displays, in terms of uh, uh, giving some, uh, I don't know, hope or some boost to what is and should be illegal activity. <laughs> okay, one more time. The WikiLeaks stuff was stolen from the Democratic computers. See, Leah, that's that's that's, that's right there. The man won't make a, a, a declarative sentence. He won't come out and say something that we know happened, yeah. and that enables most people aren't paying attention, as you know, Monroe. Right, and that enables Republicans just to to lie. Yeah, we'll get to, <laughs> to lie, and uh, and that's why. Uh, somebody could do like Leah said. It's like two different reports. Yeah, no, I, I think we'll see. But I think when this is over and done today, we're, we're going to go fairly quickly into impeachment inquiry. They have no option. They being the Democrats. The Democrats. We're going to talk about no that with David option. Ferris. Yeah, we'll okay. be getting into that because that's uh, Ferris country whether as to whether the Democrats should impeach. And, uh, we have one more update. Isn't that right, Mo uh, Robert Mueller? That's correct. <laughs> oh, that's correct. Okay. Uh, let's see here. Mueller is asked yeah. what he wants the American people to get out of his report. Oh. Uh, he was asked this by Representative Jackie Speer, California Democrat. Here we go. Oh, oh this is... <laughs> On behalf of the American people, I want to give you a minute and 39 seconds um, to tell the American people what you would like them to glean from this report. Well, uh, uh, we spent substantial time assuring the integrity of the report, understanding that it would be our living uh, message to those who, uh, who come after us. But it also is a signal, a flag to those of us who have some responsibility in this area to exercise those responsibilities swiftly and don't let this problem continue to linger as it has over so many years. Uh, what problem was he uh, specifying that would be lingering over all these years, Monroe? Do you know? Putin. Okay. <laughs> I mean, that was, first of all, she gave him a minute, 39 seconds. I was going to uh, time it. I think he took like 20 seconds tops. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I, I, I have to say, I'm not impressed with Mueller as uh, a witness, as a well, witness. Now, this, this is a problem. Mueller is old school. Yeah. He, uh, he's, he's, he's 1960s or uh, and what, where are we? 2019. Yeah. He's not media. He, he's not camera ready. He's he's not um, tweetable. 
he's in a different century, another millennium. And you could have left school out of that. Sentence. I would have said, yeah, I would take old school out of it because you're denigrating a lot of great old school people. They know that tell it like it is. That was a song from back in the day, an old school song. Tell it like it is. Say something and say it in language that people can understand. Oh, blah, blah, muddle, mumble and mutter. Hey, Seinfeld. It's it's an investigation about nothing. It's an investigation, but there is something in that investigation. No, he he actually he 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 sort of admitted he he sort of referenced some of that, and what the Democrats did was read off his um, convictions. And who was convicted? You know, they, they, they spoon feeding. Yeah, no, they spoon fed him. And in the yeah. meantime, I mean, what's really interesting is the Republicans are pushing their theory about the Clinton campaign. Yeah, actually being the villains. Yes, yeah, so we we were talking about yeah, that one. Yeah. yeah. So they, I mean, they, I mean, literally, they are using their time to talk about um, what what the Democrats did. Yeah. To get Trump elected, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, that's the problem with that. Is is this is grand conspiracy by the Democrats that assured that Trump would get elected? Yeah, we got one more update from hearing number two before okay. we uh, start playing the clips from yeah. hearing number one here. All right, uh, Adam Schiff. Okay, so under questioning from the chairman of the Intelligence Committee, Mueller contradicted Trump's rep- uh, repeated claims that his investigation was quote a witch hunt. Uh, we have the audio here. Here is Mueller and Adam Schiff. When your investigation looked into these matters, numerous Trump associates lied to your team, the grand jury, and to Congress? A number uh, of persons that we interviewed in uh, our investigation, it turns out, did lie. Mike Flynn lied? Uh, he was convicted of lying, yes. George Papadopoulos was convicted of lying? True. Paul Manafort was convicted of lying? True. Paul Manafort was, in fact, went so far as to encourage other people to lie? That is accurate. Manafort's deputy, Rick Gates, lied? That is accurate. Michael Cohen, the president's lawyer, was indicted for lying? True. He lied to stay on message with the president? Allegedly by him. And when Donald Trump called your investigation a witch hunt, that was also false, was it not? I'd like to think so, yes. Well, your investigation is not a witch hunt, is it? It is not a witch hunt. When the president said the Russian (laughs) interference was a hoax, that was false, wasn't it? True. When he said it publicly, it was false? Uh, he, he did uh, say publicly that it was false, yes. And when he told it to Putin, that was false too, wasn't it? That I'm not familiar with. <laughs> when the president said he had no business dealings with Russia, that was false, wasn't it? I'm not going to go into the details of uh, the report that uh, uh, along those lines. What, what was that? What did he say when he asked about what Trump said to Putin? That I have no. What was the, what is, was the exact phrase that he his response? I'll play it again. Yeah, play that one again because that one is just unbelievable. Like he did not know. See, this is where he's not. And when Donald Trump called your investigation a witch hunt, that was also false, was it not? I'd like to think so. Yes. Well, your investigation is not a witch hunt, is it? It is not a witch hunt. When the president said the Russian interference was a hoax, that was false, wasn't it? True. When he said it publicly, it was false? Uh, he, he did uh, say publicly that it was false, yes. And when he told it to Putin, that was false too, wasn't it? That I'm not familiar with. Okay, there we go, yeah. When the president said he had no business dealings with Russia, 
That was false, wasn't it? I'm not going to go into the details of uh, the report. Okay, there we go. Thanks for nothing there. Uh, I'm not going to go into the details of the report about the business dealings of the president with Russia. And that is the heart of this investigation. And uh, that I have, uh, I have, I have not familiar, I have not familiar with is what he said. What? You saw it. The whole country saw it. He was investigating while we were watching TV. I see. Okay. Uh, if it's not in a report, I'm not familiar with it. Uh, exactly. Did the sun rise this morning, uh, uh, Mr. Miller? Uh, I'm not familiar with that. Uh, do not know. Uh-uh. Remember Jack Webb and D- Dragon? Yes. Hat? Yes. Just the facts, Just man. the facts, I mean, man. The okay. Facts. Well, it was a fact. <laughs> Trump got on on a uh, at a press conference with Putin. He said, well, if he says he didn't do it. He didn't do it. So, you know, I, this is what's frustrating about Mueller. And this is me speaking as a reporter. This is me speaking as somebody who wants to know what the heck happened with uh, Trump and the Russians. Let's get at the bottom of it. Uh, and I uh, also want to deal with the fighting. And this is why it is, is still important, uh, Monroe. And I say this all the time, and I will say it all the time. Uh, the uh, Russians and Trump very successfully exploited divisions in the Democratic Party that are still being exploited to this day between the Sanders wing and the Clinton wing. A day doesn't pass on this show where a Bernie supporter doesn't come in here belly aching about Hillary and a Hillary supporter doesn't come in here belly aching about Bernie. And they were both they're victimized by what? The Russians did by hacking those computers. Well said by Bernie, bro. <laughs> yeah, Bernie, bro. What's a Bernie, bro? I didn't cry like a baby when the election was over. I wasn't one of those kinds of Bernie. Oh, we lost. <laughs> okay, I didn't do that, but I wasn't Bernie, bro. Yeah, I voted for Bernie. Yeah, proud of it, too. All right, I got some audio here from uh, hearing number one. We had a good time talking about it. Let's get Monroe's take oh, on yeah. it. Oh, yeah, come on, Monroe. I got this three Republicans one. here. I'm just going to spin the wheel and see which one we land on (laughs) Louis Gohmert listen now regarding collusion or conspiracy you didn't find evidence of any agreement I'm quoting you among the Trump campaign officials and any Russia linked individuals to interfere with our US election correct correct so you also note in the report that an element of any of those obstructions you referenced requires a corrupt state of mind, correct? Corrupt intent, correct. Right. And if somebody knows they did not conspire with anybody from Russia to affect the election, and they see the big Justice Department with people that hate that person coming after them, and then a special counsel appointed who hires dozen or more people that hate that person and he knows he's innocent he's not corruptly acting in order to see that justice is done what he's doing is not obstructing justice he is pursuing justice and the fact that you ran it out two years means you perpetuated injustice i take your question gentlemen's time has expired the witness may answer the question first again what is the question that was asked but uh 
All right. What was, now, okay, first of all, what was he up to there? It's, it's important mm-hmm. for you to remember yeah. that he still believes that Obama was born in Kenya. And I'm not joking. This uh, uh, Gomer. Gomer, yeah, yeah, Gomer. He's still he's he's still a true believer in the birther nonsense. Okay, now and the other thing is. <laughs> What a congressman. Thank God he's not my congressman. <laughs> I'd be ashamed. I mean, he is so, I mean, it's just such a, a stupid argument he's doing. I mean, it's, it's part of the, the twisting oneself into a pretzel. Yeah. To, to, um, to make a point. I mean, it's just. And I don't know what his point is. Oh, his point is that Trump is innocent. Yeah. And so Trump obstructed justice because he knew he was innocent, and therefore there was nothing for, for him to obstruct, and he was upset about it. I gotcha. That was his and, point. Yes. Good God. I mean, no, that's one of the points they make. Yeah. He's not the only one to ma- yeah. be making that point. Uh, it's like Trump, poor Trump, is such a victim, and they've been treating him so badly for two and a half years, and therefore. Um, you can understand why he acts the way he acts. I see. Uh, lies the way that's he what that point was. Okay, that was a hard one for me to get uh, to ascertain. David Ferris has joined us, Roosevelt University political science professor. We're gonna uh, we'll probably play a few more of these things to get David's response. Also, he's gonna pick apart Nate Cohen. I've been waiting for this for uh, about a week now. I think it's been about five days. Uh, Nate Cohen's analysis that Donald Trump. What? Let's not even have an election. Let's just declare him the winner. That's what Cohen said. And Democrats have lost their minds. Uh, just uh, his analysis, Cohen says that uh, Donald Trump will uh, win on another electoral victory. Uh, David Ferris thinks otherwise, and he's done his own deep dive. So we'll bring him on when we return. Hey, everybody, what you're about to hear are the piano stylings of Jeff Manuel. Man, listen to Jeff go. Jeff Manuel has been playing piano around Chicago for years. He's played for conventions, for celebrities, played in basement bars with blues bands. He's played at prestigious social clubs, fine restaurants, and in the intimacy of private homes. Book Jeff Manuel at jeffemanuelpianist.com. Don't worry, I'll spell his name at the end of this commercial. You know what Chicago Magazine said? They said that Jeff Manuel is, quote, as comfortable with Chopin as he is with Cole Porter. He's excellent, and his performance is joyous. He offers an elegant stream of compositions and interpretations that entertains the mind but won't hurt the ears. To hear more of Jeff Manuel's work and to book Jeff for your next event, go to jeffmanuelpianist.com. I'm going to spell it out for you, people. J-E-F-F. M as in Mary, A, N as in Nancy, U, E, L, P, I, A, N, I, S, T, dot com. Take it away, Jeff Manuel. All right, our friends and co-hosts at the Chicago Sun-Times are offering you, yeah, you, the listener, an exclusive deal on unlimited digital access to all, that's A-L-L, all, 
of the stories that you love. Unlock every feature, video, and podcast, just like this show, The Ben Jarofsky Show, by signing up now for a digital subscription. For a limited time only, you can test out digital access for only $1, not a typo. One dollar. Seriously, there's no reason to not give this a shot. Stay up to date on breaking stories. Get the deep dives and investigations from Sun Times reporters. Cheer for the big games with the best sports team in the city and go deep inside City Hall with best in-class political reporting. One dollar. I said one dollar for your first month. You really can't do better than that. All right. Hour number two of your Ben Jarofsky show for Wednesday, July 24th is moments away. But before we get into that, we need to thank the following unions once again for jumping on board and helping bring back our program. First up, it's the International Association of Machinists and Aerospace Workers, Local 126 and District 8, the International Brotherhood of Electrical Workers, Local 9, and the International Union of Operating Engineers, Local 150. A giant thank you to those unions for jumping on board and helping bring back our program. And, of course, today's show is brought to you by our good friends at the Chicago Federation of Labor. Hour number two. Let's go. It is Wednesday, July 24th. And live from the Chicago Sun-Times, Chicago Reader Studio on Racine Avenue, this is The Ben Jarofsky Show. In this hour of the program, yeah, it's all things the Mueller testimony. We still got Monroe Anderson in studio. We welcome back political author and professor David Ferris. And, well, she's not going to be talking Mueller. Well, we'll probably twist her arm and make her talk Mueller. Sometimes obit writer Maureen O'Donnell. And now your host, biggest fan of Louis Gohmert in this building. <laughs> now he's not. Uh, Chicago Reader columnist Ben Jarofsky. Louis Gohmert, the congressman from Texas. What a character he is. Uh, one of Donald Trump's big defenders. And as Monroe just pointed out, he be- still believes that uh, Barack Obama was born in Kenya. David Ferris in the studio, Roosevelt University political scientist, uh, professor, author of It's Time to Fight Dirty, How Democrats Can Build a Lasting Majority in American Politics. I, fo- I discovered this book, I don't know how long ago it was, David, a year or so ago. I've been uh, citing it ever since. You're my guru in fighting back uh, <laughs> and not rolling over. And to that point, you had a tweet today. I'm not usually a person uh, who reads tweets, but somehow or other, I found this tweet. I will now quote you to you. Quote, I'm only going to watch these hearings if Dems promise not to roll over afterwards. Uh, that is so David Ferrisian, if such a word exists. Uh, and uh, I, I, I'm going to ask you to explain what you were getting at in that tweet. Uh, but first, I got to ask you to uh, take a little deeper dive on what you said to us off a mic about what uh, Robert Mueller's uh, performance today. Well, I mean, I, I guess I'm just surprised at this point that... Um that Mueller has not been more forceful in fighting back against these these conspiracy theories that are getting lobbed at him by um, Republican members of Congress. You know, um, they're they're basically reading from transcripts of like you know Fox News lunacy and conspiracy theories and attacking his integrity. Um, and he he just kind of you know he's just like I have no comment or you know I'm not going to talk about that. I heard him say one at one point today I'm not going to try to explain that to you. And it's like okay that's great, but why did you? <laughs> Why, why come today at all yeah. uh, if you're mostly going to avoid <clears throat> addressing these, these big things? Um, so, so I'm disappointed. You know, I, I feel like um, at a certain point it becomes undignified. Uh, I, I think he gets up there and he's like, I'm going to maintain my dignity and my composure, sort of like Hillary Clinton at the Benghazi hearings, right? But like, 
she did get angry at some point, right? I mean, you know, uh, there's that viral moment where she's sitting with her head in, in her hand like this, you know, looking at him like, you idiots want to ask me another question, you know? And I'm kind of, I'm waiting for that from Mueller, you know? Like, at what point does he not just snap and say like, I'm a Republican, I'm a lifelong Republican. You know, I did this out of a, a service to the public. Um, and for you to sit out there and just, and just and lob these preposterous theories at me is, is offensive. It's, it's, it's beneath your dignity, it's beneath the dignity of Congress. Um, so maybe I'm living in a fantasy world where I expected that from him at this point. But actually, he, he didn't. He didn't um, answer them when they came up with their crazy theories. As as when they were supposed to, the Republicans when they were supposed to be questioning him, they were actually giving an exposition on um, the their, their nutty theories about how the Democrats did all this. Yeah. And his response was like, um, "Oh." I'm not going to respond to that. No, his it, it, it uh, David's point's a good one. I I've watched many congressional, uh, you know, high-profile congressional hearings. I can think of Oliver North. It's way be, uh, well, Monroe would be the one only one in this room would remember it. But Oliver North Democrat. testifying uh, in front of a Democratic-run uh, Senate committee investigating the Iran Contra hearings, uh, the Iran Contra scandal of the Reagan administration in the 1980s, and he just went on the attack from the get-go and it was very uh well it saved his neck he became of course a hero to the republican right uh even if he had been dealing uh illegally and secretly with iran a country we're supposedly like at war with uh and i don't see anything resembling that uh from robert Mueller. you're absolutely correct do you get that one i'd love to hear uh david david's reaction to this where the one congressman was asking him about the uh the investigators who gave money to hillary clinton or their bias do you have that one i believe so i believe this is uh kelly armstrong kelly armstrong uh, today Mueller, this isn't just about you being able to vouch for your team. This is about knowing that the day you accepted this role, you had to be aware no matter what this report concluded, half of the country was going to be scheduled, skeptical of your team's findings. And that's why we have recusal laws that define bias and perceive bias for this very reason. 28 United States Code 528 specifically lists not just political conflict of interest, but the appearance of political conflict of interest. It's just simply not enough that you vouch for your team. The interests of justice demand that no perceived bias exists. I can't imagine a single prosecutor or judge that I have ever appeared in front of would be comfortable with these circumstances where over half of the prosecutorial team had a direct relationship to the opponent of the person being investigated. Well, let me, one other fact that I, I put on the table, and that is we hired 19 lawyers over the period of time. Of those 19 lawyers, 14 of them were transferred from elsewhere in the Department of Justice. Only five came from outside. And so half of them had a direct relationship, political or personal, with the opponent of the person you were investigating. And that's my point. I wonder if not a single word in this entire report was changed, but rather the only difference was we switched Hillary Clinton and President Trump. All right, David Ferris, your, your thoughts on that? I mean, again, I just I, I find his defense like feeble. You know, um, he's taking these questions at face value. Um, you know, it's like, uh, you know, it, it's like as if Sean Hannity was in the room, you know, questioning Bob Mueller and Mueller was like, well, uh, I, I mean, 14 of these guys were transferred from other parts of the, like anybody cares on the Republican <laughs> side that they came from DOJ instead of outside. You yeah. know, that's not the, that's not the locus of the conspiracy theories. And so, um, I don't know if he was like tired or if he's just tired of this whole circus or what. Um, but he, you know, he needs to lean into this and say like, you know, 
you can't just smear the integrity of these of these people who set aside their their lives for two years to investigate this um, you know this president um, and to you know defend them defend them by name um, talk about the people that you know that, that never contributed to Hillary Clinton's campaign or whatever um, talk about you know how he's wrong about the regulations you know talk, point out the irony of these guys uh, citing specific um, you know sections of of the DOJ code um, as if the president himself has not violated you know fifty seven different ones you know it's like um, I just, you know, you just want a little bit more spirited fight. If, if I poured two years of my life into something, you know, and uh, and these guys had spent, you know, months and months and months impugning my integrity and, and convincing half the population that it didn't matter, um, I'd be I'd be more upset than this. You know, I'd be like the guys that that negotiated the Iran deal. You know, when when Trump torched that deal, they went nuclear on Twitter. Yeah, you no know, pun intended. Yeah. Um, and so if I, you know, if I pour my life into something, I'm I just, you know, maybe it's just me, but I'm I'm gonna. Expend a little bit more energy defending myself and my operation. He, he, he I'm got, with you 100%. Mueller got a little bit more animated when they attacked his his team. I, that was part of it, what, what you just played, if you believe it or not. Yeah, that's that was him part animated. Of, yeah, that's part of the animation. <laughs> but, 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 but he was offended. You know, he, he pointed out that he never um, asked anyone for their political affiliation yeah. when he hired them. He just hired the best guys. Well, th this this gets into uh, one of David Ferris's themes, Monroe. And I don't know if you, you guys have never been on the show together, but- uh, well, We've said the same thing. Same, very similar <laughs> worldviews. Right. Uh, and and uh, I'm putting words into this young man's mouth. I'm gonna let you, David, say it yourself. But the Democrats don't fight the same way the Republicans fight. And Republicans, they, they don't care if they were saying A at Benghazi and now they're having to completely contradict themselves here. They will do it. Right. And, and they all, they don't care. It doesn't matter. Republic, uh, Democrats, and in this case, Mueller's acting like a Democrat, even though he's a lifelong Republican. They don't want to get in the fight. They're bigger than the fight. You know, the report speaks for this. This is enormous report. They got totally trashed by the Republicans. You're right. David, defend your freaking report. Defend the people who gave up two years of their lives uh, investigating. They just let the Republicans trash them like as though they were just, uh, what, operatives from the Hillary Clinton campaign. It's the same old Democratic fall down and let the Republicans roll all over you. Yeah, and that's, you know, I mean, that's why I didn't, you know, I wasn't too excited about today. You know, my, my editor at the week was like, you want to write this? And I was like, I guess, you know, um, because I just don't think anything's going to come of this because I think the Dem you know, Democratic senior leadership has already made a strategic decision to, to move on from this. Um, you know, they've got these various investigations. They're all getting stonewalled. Um, and unless they open up an, an impeachment inquiry, um, then I think the president's strategy is going to be vindicated, you know. Um, and so, uh, you know, Democrats in the in the House today, they can do it. You know, they did everything they could, I think, in the questioning. I thought the questioning was fine. Right. The, the real the, um, the the crux of the matter is what are you going to do when the questioning is over? You know, uh, Mueller laid out what happened in the report. And he laid out what happened today. Um, I wish that he would be more direct and say, you know, I believe the president committed crimes. Um, there were a few moments. I think you've probably seen them on Twitter. Um, one is where Ken, you know, Representative Ken Buck of Colorado said, you know, do you think the president can be um, prosecuted after he leaves office or indicted after he leaves office? And Mueller's like, yes, he could. Yeah. Right. And everybody yeah. on the left was like, yeah, yeah. we got him. Right. We got him. Right. This is it. You know, that's the moon's got off. That's yeah. an exact quote. Yes, yes he, he could. could. Right. He could. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, well, Woody, I don't know. Uh, you know, it's and so uh, what I really wanted to see from Democrats today was, you know, 
Could he be in, could he be indicted after he leaves office? Sure. That was obvious before today. It's obvious after today, right, that a president can be indicted for crimes committed while in office after he leaves. Because Bob Mueller's not writing the OLC memos, right? So he's yeah. not the final word on this anyway. Um, but you need to get him on record. Like, would you, like, if you were running the show, would you indict President Trump when he leaves office? Yes or no? Um, and I think people on the left think that they got that moment today, and they did not. Um, and that's again, comes back to Mueller and his unwillingness to go there. See, we're, we're in the wrong um, part of the government at this point. We need to be in the Senate. This needed to be going on in the Senate with all those people who are running for president right now asking the questions. <laughs> they would have been much. Can you imagine Kamala, Kamala Harris. Harris? Right. <laughs> she, she, would, she, would, she would have been up and down and all over him. Yeah. Uh, even even Cory Booker, he would have been. It, it would have been a completely different setting. Although Swalwell was, Swalwell was he's forceful. not been bad. He's no, been forceful. Yeah, I, he's been good. I, I, I think the particular problem, uh, and both of you have alluded to it, is the witness in this particular case. And he, is, uh, he didn't want to be there. Right. He's showing through every... Like body language you could show that he doesn't want to be there. He won't state anything clearly, coherently, straightforward. He he speaks mush. So you, you can't even come away. Like you, you can't even, like he says, I'd like to think so. Remember that one question uh, they they asked and we just played it? You know, uh, did, about Putin? About Putin. Uh, yeah, no, did you guys do a good job or are you straightforward? I'd like to think so. What? I'd like to think so. You right. know, hell yeah. We did a good yeah, job. Yes or no? Yeah, you know? I'd like to think so. And uh, so I think the the problem uh, is the witness. And uh, I, I'm starting to wonder um, if the uh, Democrats did themselves a favor by calling him uh, to testify. But let's get something out. You just said the strategic decision, David, uh, uh, to move away. Uh, you said a, a, a strategic decision has already been made by the Democrats regarding this. What are you talking about? Well, I mean, I, I think I'm talking about Leader Pelosi and her, her so far refusal to initiate an impeachment inquiry in the mm -hmm. House of Representatives. Um, and, you, you know, you, you read a thousand political articles about it. You know, I don't know her, but the, the theory is, you know, she's worried about the moderate Democrats that were elected on the margins by, you know, half a point, one point, um, people that were really, you know, that are really responsible for the margin for the Democrats in the House. She thinks it's going to play badly for those members to have to defend an impeachment inquiry next year next November. Um, and I just, I couldn't disagree with her more. Um, I, I think that if you look at the, the, the history of the last 10 years suggests that the whole party sinks or swims together, you know, that the moderates can, you know, the moderates can go out in the street every day and be like, I'm a moderate. Don't, don't hate me. Don't, you know, like, I know you hate my party right now, but don't hate me. Save me on election day. And it just does not work. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, and so you can see this over and over again in the Senate. Um, you saw it. Uh, you, you saw it last year with Dean Heller. You saw it um, the year before, uh, in 2016, with Mark Kirk. Um, you see it on the Democratic side with like nine different senators in 2014 who were like, I'm, I'm not really that keen on the ACA or Obamacare, as they call it, and yeah. they lost by 18 points. You know, like these moderates are either going to win because because the, the American people want the Democrats to control the House, or they're going to lose um, because they don't think you know that the, the Democratic base didn't feel like enough fight was put up against President Trump. And or, you know, President Trump remains popular enough to retake the House, for the Republicans to retake the House. It does not matter. Does not matter. Well, you, you know, and I think what we may get after this with Mueller, because he's not the savior they were hoping for, mm -hmm. is that they will start the impeachment inquiry. Because you also have these polls coming out 
now that um, well, um, five thirty-eight or five yeah five twenty-eight, uh, saying that um, Trump can win the electoral. All vote. right, we're going to get into and that. So, yeah. And so, and <laughs> so, if, if Trump can win. <laughs> It's, you know, because now they're nervous about all this because they think they're going to win it all back. But if it becomes obvious that tr- there's a good shot that Trump can win, then they've got to go to scor- scorched earth strategy or either just free, cr- close up the party. Well, I, I think uh, before we get into the Electoral College, I think that the Mueller, this is what's so frustrating about uh, Mueller in, as a, a public figure, and this gets at what Leah was saying uh, before you got here, uh, David. Uh, the Mueller report makes clear uh, the things that Donald Trump did wrong, and the evidence is there in the Mueller report. So uh, you, you have to ask yourself, is the evidence strong enough that you should have an impeachment uh, process begin? I think yes. I think of a president telling his cohorts to lie and cover up evidence of uh, the, to, to thwart an investigation into whether he was uh, you know, in bed with the Russians and hacking in the Democratic computers. I think that warrants impeachment hearing. Now, personally, that's my belief. And that's in the Mueller report. The guy won't come out and say it, declare, you know, declare it right there for everybody to hear, but it's in his report. And so I think you should have an impeachment hearing. Yeah, well, you know, as I've said before, I think they should have the impeachment hearing, and I don't think it's going to work for Trump because if you have week after week fact witnesses talking about the horrible things Trump did, and he has to run on that, and the Republicans have to defend him on that, He's not going to win. Yeah. If you know, if you've had these hearings, people come forth and said this happened and this happened and this happened, then the Republicans have come on with their their fantasy thing about how the um, Democrats ran, uh, had this conspiracy to help Trump win. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, that's their logic on this. Uh, all right. Now, uh, one other thing, real quickly, mm-hmm. I am still waiting on some of these Republicans to explain to me and the American people why the Democrats, the, 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 the um, FBI, the CIA, all these people hate Trump so much. I mean, where, where did this pay- hatred come from? You know, they just, I mean, they're doing all these horrible things because they hate him, but they never bother to tell you why they hate mm-hmm. him, why these people allegedly hate him. Well, uh, obviously what they're doing is, that's why I always say it's the Johnny Cochran defense. They're assailing the investigators uh, and to undermine the their, their case that the investigators are making. It worked for uh, Johnny Cochran and O.J. Simpson, and it seems like it's going to it's working uh, for uh, Rudy Giuliani and Donald Trump, mainly because the Democrats aren't fighting back hard. All right, now let's go to what uh, Monroe raised the topic, David, and let's take that dive. Uh, Nate Cohn in the New York Times wrote an article uh, that ran, I think, this weekend that essentially said, I'm boiling it down, uh, that in all likelihood, the Democratic candidate, whoever that Democratic candidate is, will win by more votes than Hillary Clinton, uh, but will lose the Electoral College, and Donald Trump will get to hold on to the White House uh, because the swing states, Wisconsin, Michigan, Pennsylvania, in his estimation, are trending Trump. Uh, you've already written a response, so let's hear your response uh, today. Sure. I mean, I, um, I I think it's 
it's always worth keeping in mind that that his scenario is possible, right? Like it is possible that President Trump could lose the popular vote by more than Hillary Clinton did, um, and still hold on, win the presidency by by hanging on in the Electoral College. Um, this, that's the system design. I mean, the system design is such that you know you could win California by 25 million votes and lose every other single state by one vote, right? And win like a 65, 35 uh, decisive uh, uh, victory in the, in the popular vote and still lose the electoral vote. That's the system design. So it's possible, right? Um, where I took issue with, with his analysis um, is in a couple of different places. One, you know, the headline says something like, um, you know, uh, electoral, co- you know, Trump may win by more in the electoral college next year, something, something like that, you know? Um, and it's not really, it doesn't really, it's not really backed to the headlines, not backed up by the data that he presents, right? Mm-hmm. But he looks at, he looks at two states, interestingly, not Pennsylvania, not Michigan, but he looks at Wisconsin and Florida. Um, and he says, look at, look at Wisconsin. Um, seems like the president is as popular there today, roughly as he was on election day in 2016, using data from the 2018 midterm election results. And then a couple of New York times surveys. Um, he puts up a chart that shows the president less popular in Milwaukee by a little bit and much less popular in the rest of the state. Um, and then he's like, see, so <laughs> looks like he's going to win Wisconsin. And it's like, well, no, A, that doesn't make any sense, right? The whole article is premised on Trump getting more popular between now and election day. In other words, cons- you know, consolidating his support, which I, I'm not sure that's possible because he already has the support of as many Republicans as he's, he's ever going to get. And he seems determined, so he wakes up every morning to alienate um, you know, what few remaining independents there are in the country. So Cohen's assumption that the president, like all incumbents, will get slightly more popular as Election Day approaches mm-hmm. um, undergirds the whole article. Um, he doesn't put that caveat in there until the very end. Um, and I don't think he considers the possibility that, that he's wrong, right? that there is other data out there that suggests the president is much less popular in Wisconsin, Wisconsin Pennsylvania, uh, in Michigan than he was on election night in 2016. Um, and that's a polling operation called Morning Consult. They do mm-hmm. a daily tracking poll of the president's approval in all 50 states. Pretty, it's a very remarkable project. We didn't have this before. Um, and those numbers show the president in about 42, 43% in Wisconsin, um, a little bit lower than that in Michigan, a little bit lower than that in Pennsylvania. Um, and so I just, you know, you're cherry picking data. Um, and I, I thought in the worst possible way, you're cherry picking data from your employer because uh, the New York Times produced those surveys, right? Um, and so I just, you know, I don't buy it. The other part of it I didn't buy, right? The, the story that we could have a worse disjuncture in, in 2020 than we did in 2016 is premised on two different things, okay? One is Trump hangs on in, in the three blue wall states that he captured in, in 16. He hangs on in Wisconsin, Michigan, and Pennsylvania, right? Um, and then that's the, that's the win the electoral college story, right? Mm-hmm. The, the lose the popular vote by more story um, depends on two things. One, losing California by worse than he did in 2016, and then winning Texas by fewer points yeah. than he did in 2016. There's some other states involved, you know, you say Illinois or, or um, you know, some of the, you know, South Carolina or whatever. Okay, and there's just, there's no, there's no evidence in recent electoral history with incumbent presidents that that kind of like, you know, two different paths um, of the popular vote in a very patterned and meaningful way is gonna happen. And usually most states are gonna break one way or the other. Either the incumbent will do better than they did the first time mm-hmm. or they will do worse. You know, in 2012, Barack Obama did worse in, you know, 48, or 47 out of 51 states, in, including DC. Okay, in 2004, George W. Bush did better in 34 out of 51. Um, so the idea that Trump is going to do worse in the blue states, and um, you know, uh, it just doesn't make any sense. The data is not there for California either. Um, Trump's approval rating in California is, is higher than his election night share of the vote there. Um, 
And so I, I just don't see it, right? I think that, in, in, particularly in California, New York, Illinois, I, I think Trump is at pretty much near the rock bottom of, of the two-party vote. He, he hit that in 2016. It's pretty hard for me to see him eroding further there. Um, and, and not just that, but the whole story depends on, on this miracle through, um, through the Midwest that, you know, we didn't see it in 2018. You know, it's possible, sure. I mean, the president could get more popular yeah. between now and Election Day. But uh, I sort of... You know, like a lot of people, it was like that article dropped on my lap on Friday afternoon, right? And we all, then we'd spend the weekend being like, oh my God. You <laughs> yeah, know, everybody like, lost oh, their mind. God, we all lost our minds. And it was yeah. like, no, man, I mean, sure. Yeah. You know, work is, you know, don't be complacent about it. I, I think the president has a decent chance of being reelected, but I don't think that the, I don't think it's going to be like that. I don't, I hope it's not going to be like that. Yeah. Well, I, I, so many different people sent me copies of that article that it, it, it made me believe that the whole thing uh, was calculated just to get hits and clicks. Because yeah. as you said, the map that he put out sort of contradicted the headline that was contradicted by the headline. Uh, let's take it down a little bit uh, state by state, if you will, for the moment. Uh, Trump, important swing states, uh, Florida, Michigan, Wisconsin, or Pennsylvania. What's your sense of Florida? Now, that is a state that Donald Trump absolutely has to win if he's going to get uh, reelected. I can't, I'm thinking off the top of my head. I don't think any Republican has won uh, the presidency in the last, uh, well, since the 70s without having won Florida. So what's your sense of how Florida is going these days? I mean, Florida has been, you know, among the closest states for multiple, you know, since the turn of the century. Um, and I think Democrats have gotten overly pessimistic about about Florida because we've lost statewide elections there. You know, the last four cycles are, you know, um, 18, 16 and 14, at least. Um, we've just, you know, just just by this much, you know, we lost the governorship and we lost a Senate race there in 2018. In, a, in an otherwise very good year for Democrats, um, we lost the, the presidential vote there by a couple of points um, in 2016. And so I, I feel like everyone is has just written off Florida. Or, um, or, or more accurately, it was stolen in, yeah. in much of uh, in much 2000. Yeah. 2000 uh, they, in 18, uh, it was stolen. In the, the, governor's, in the governor's race. race. Yeah, exactly, exactly. I mean, they, I mean, they, they have perfected the cheating. The, they being the Republicans. The Republicans. And when yeah. you say stealing, and, what do you mean? Rigging the election so they can win against all odds. No, but I mean stealing it by what? Uh, well, okay, in 2000, by the, the hanging Chad in yeah. the Supreme Court. Um, in 18, they it was voter suppression, and mm -hmm. there was a couple of counties, critical counties, where they should have won, and strange things happened to the ballots. They got lost, or they disappeared, mm -hmm. or so. I mean, it was, it was, but it was, it was plainly rigged. Uh, it, it, so, uh, and going, let's look at Michigan then. Uh, your thoughts on how Michigan is? I mean, you know, Michigan as a state, I, I, I think that we're going to look back at Michigan the way that we looked at Indiana after two thousand and eight. You remember two thousand eight, Barack Obama won in Indiana. Yeah, I was stunned yeah. when that happened. It was shocking. Yeah, you know, and then I went right back. You know, went right back to being a red state. But five minutes later, they were like, oh, my God. <laughs> what, are we what have we done? We actually hate Democrats. It's yeah. crazy. Yeah. Um, and so I think in, in, in Michigan, which, is, which was a blue-leaning state prior to 2016, I think Michigan has gone back to being a blue-leaning state now. 
Um, that doesn't mean a Republican can't win a statewide race there. Um, it's not, you know, it's not as red as Indiana. Um, but I, I don't think Michigan is going to be a tipping point state. I don't think it's going to be super competitive. Um, the Democratic candidates won going away last year. Um, and I would expect any Democratic nominee to win Michigan by four or five points just based on just based on the president's approval ratings there. Um, and I, I don't think that Trump is going to I don't think he's going to carry Michigan. I really don't. I think that I think the race comes down to Wisconsin. Well, and, and, and I think that unlike when Hillary was running, whoever the Democratic standard bearer is this time, they're going to spend a whole lot of time in, in Wisconsin, in Wisconsin, Michigan, Michigan yeah. and Pennsylvania. All right. Uh, yeah, I agree with that. By, by the way, if you say it comes out of Wisconsin, then you're presuming that Pennsylvania will swing back. I do. I mean, I might have a, I, you know, <laughs> I don't want to, I don't like to make ironclad predictions anymore because yeah. before the election in 2016, I told my students in class, I said, Donald Trump wins Pennsylvania, I will eat this suit jacket. Yeah. <laughs> How did it taste? Well, the next day I was like, actually, I've reconsidered. Um, I only have this one suit jacket. Yeah. <laughs> and I can't eat it. I need it. You know, I'm really sorry. Uh, so again, I think it's unlikely that Trump will carry Pennsylvania. He's yeah. not popular there. Um, the Democratic gubernatorial candidate won by double digits last year. Um, and, you know, again, it's, it's like winning Pennsylvania relied on this, this unlikely confluence of factors. Um, there's just sort of not enough people turning out in Philadelphia and Pittsburgh. It relied on, on white voters turning out in numbers that they hadn't, they hadn't turned out in before. Um, and it, it depended on the president winning independence. Mm -hmm. um, and that's, I think, the big thing working against him right now. In all three of these states is that independents, uh, where they went, they went for him in 2016, have turned against him pretty decisively. Um, and you can win the presidency by and still lose independence. Obama did it in 2012, um, and it's you know it's happened before. But the president is losing them by enough that I think it's going to make the difference. Um, in, in at least in Pennsylvania and Michigan, and then Wis I'm more worried, much more worried about Wisconsin than either one of these mm -hmm. two states, because Tony Evers, the the new governor, you know, won. Less, but less than a point, right? Yeah, Democrat. Uh, yeah, mm -hmm. a Democrat in, in, a, in a wave election year in 2018 against a, an incumbent, Scott Walker, who you know uh, was running for his third term. Essentially, um, should have worn out his welcome with voters by then, and he still almost won. He almost beat Evers, and so I feel like um, I feel like Wisconsin has changed in a way that's a little bit more permanent mm -hmm. um, than Michigan and Pennsylvania, which I would still describe as blue leaning. Whereas Wisconsin seems to have become this like sort of pure toss-up state um, in the way that in the way that Florida is, you know. Do you see any states that uh, are the equivalent of Wisconsin, but for the Democrats' advantage? In other words, a state that you think is now trending Democrat that the Republicans uh, would have been accounting. Georgia, I think Georgia. Do you think Georgia, Georgia fits that? Yeah, of course. Yeah, Georgia fits that bill. Arizona fits that bill. North Carolina fits that bill. Um, you know, North Carolina is a state that, that Barack Obama won in 2008, so it's not unprecedented. Um, and I think it's important to note that the President Trump has one path, you know, um, and that depends on Michigan, Pennsylvania, and Wisconsin, right? Um, and he doesn't need all three of them, um, but uh, but a Democrat can make up for the loss of a Wisconsin or a Michigan elsewhere. Um, yeah. So you could win Arizona, you yeah, could win Georgia, you could you win North Carolina. The, you have these shifting demographics where um, these southern states that were uh, perfectly red keep getting these um, factories and these uh, companies are moving their headquarters down there. And with them come um, left-thinking left people. Yeah. And so that's watering down that that solidarity that they once had. 
Uh, and all right, so in terms of getting people uh, in a Georgia or a Wisconsin uh, to move to the Democratic uh, side, it, there's a struggle here. We hear it on this show all the time. Uh, we have the Pelosi uh, attitude, I'll just put her name on it, that you can't go too far left because you'll alienate. Uh, the swing voters and then uh, you have pretty much every guest who comes on the show point of view uh, that you have to go left that's the way to do it you have to stand for something uh, how do you view it David um, I, you know I'm probably more with the latter group I think um, I think particularly in this era where partisanship is so hardened um, you could run um, you could run Elizabeth Warren or Bernie Sanders, or you could win Joe Biden. I mean, you could run Joe Biden or Pete Buttigieg, who's, the, I guess, the moderate white guy in the race at this point, um, under the age of 75. Yeah, I was you know, going to say, there's quite yeah, a, yeah. a few. Yeah. Um, the, you know, the only one with the chance to win. There's a five-person race right yeah. now, like, let's be honest, right? Um, and you could, you know, I think you could run candidates from either wing of the party. And on election day, the, the difference in the number of Democrats who will vote for either of those candidates is not going to change by more than a point. You know, I just I just think that at the end of the day, the party will consolidate, um, especially with a chance to dislodge Donald Trump from office. Mm -hmm. um, the question is, you know, who, who which of these candidates might appeal to, to independents in these states? Um, and I think the paths differ depending on the candidate. Right? I think I think somebody like Kamala Harris has a chance to, to really make up margins in the South and win North Carolina and win Georgia um, with the right running mate, maybe win Arizona. Um, and maybe she loses Wisconsin, but if you know, then it doesn't matter, yeah. right? If you got Michigan, you got Pennsylvania, and you pick up Georgia or you pick up Arizona, that makes up for the loss of Wisconsin. And and see, and I think it's it's a base race, period. And so whoever can turn out the largest number in their base will win this race. And Democrats, what Democrats have to do, what they fail to do uh, with with Hillary, mm -hmm. was to um, get the black vote out. Had the black vote turned out at the same proportion mm. that it did when Obama was running, Trump, we wouldn't be having this discussion yeah. about Trump at uh, all. Because then Wisconsin and Michigan and Pennsylvania would have gone the other way. Exactly. All right, since you raised the issue of race, let's deal with it. Uh, Donald Trump has clearly decided uh, uh, that it's in his best interest to um, put... Uh, Representative Omar, uh, Representative Ocasio-Cortez, uh, Re Representative Talib, and uh, Representative Presley. Somehow or other, he decided to throw her into the mix as well. His inner, race, his inner races just came out. Just, it was, it was, it, so I, you I don't even think, think it's a strategy. No, well, he's think, doubling down on it, exactly, tripling down exactly. on it, quadrupling down exactly. on it. No, his inner races, he couldn't, he couldn't help it anymore. Uh, he has, he has, um, he has uh, white supremacists. As, as his advisors. And, and so, it's his instinct anyway. And it's, in, it's his instinct, and so he's just going to go with the flow. All right. Well, the defense uh, for Donald Trump was articulated uh, in today's uh, Chicago Tribune by a columnist by the name of John Cass, old friend of Monroe's. Oh, you uh, love him. <laughs> uh, John Cass is to the right of right, and uh, his attitude is that uh, the Democrats have, are like chicken little. They keep crying racism and it means nothing anymore uh and so essentially he's ab absolving donald trump donald trump may have made some asinine comments but they're not racist so stop calling it racism and um 
let's move on. So I guess anything's permitted, permissible for Donald Trump, uh, by uh, according to John Cass. How do you deal, gentlemen, with the uh, with Donald Trump and the assertions he's making and the uh, arguments he's making? Uh, what do you think is the best strategy to pursue uh, to try to win the election and deal with the ugly, obnoxious, and I believe racist comments coming from Donald Trump? Um, I mean, first of all, John Cass. <laughs> is like the worst columnist in America. Um, and he, he inherited that title from a guy in Philly, actually where I'm from, named Stu Bukowski, who just retired. Um, so John, you, the title is yours now. Um, stop gaslighting me, right? Like when you tell a bunch of people of color to go back where they came from, you know, that's not asinine, that's not a misstep, that's racist, right? You can't be in America because you're a person of color. Right? He's not saying that to white people. You know, he's not he's not saying to people, go back to Germany or go back to the Czech Republic or whatever. Well, he's saying that to people of color. Um, and it's and it's absurd. And I think the Democrats should call it out for what it is, which is racism. Um, you know, that's not a 2020 strategy, though. Right. I mean, I think in a lot of respects, the president is going to is going to hang himself by his own petard with his racism. Right. He did it before the midterms when he made the whole thing about the caravan and it really hurt him in the House. Um, and he's going to do it next year. He's going to focus attention on, on these women of color in the House. Um, and I, I think a lot of people, whether they agree with them or not, himself. he can't he, help he, himself. He can't. He's a racist. Yeah. You know, and, and he's he's tried to hide it at some points. Um, he's tried to rationalize it. But he's a racist. There's no question about it. He's been a racist since the 70s. Mm-hmm. And um, and as 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 things heat up, and he becomes more and more threatened, then he's going to turn to his white base because the Republican Party is um, just, it's the white man's party now, the white people's party. I just don't see it as a winning strategy for the Republican Party. This is where I disagree with Cohn, who writes for the New York Times. I don't see how it's a winning strategy for the Republican Party to double down on Donald Trump's rhetoric. And you you may be correct, Monroe. I can't get into Donald Trump's head what a frightening thought that is yeah, right. to see if he's doing it because he thinks it's the best political strategy or because he's just following some racist impulse. Well, he thinks it's a good strategy also. So it's but, a combination but, but it's a of combo. things. Yeah, yeah, I mean, right. The fact that he does it again and again and again no, and, you know, for people suggests who, that who he's try, strategic. And, and for people who try to say, well, he's really not a racist, but he's doing it for strategy or whatever, look at his inner circle. Look at his cabinet. One token black person in his entire cabinet. Um, when he has these cabinet meetings, when he have, has these um, his inner circle meetings, it looks like the white citizens. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the views and the comments of Monroe Anderson. I knew there would be one of those today, Monroe. Uh, so I. But I can't believe, David, that it's a successful strategy. I, I, maybe I'm naive, well, but I just is. can't believe it's a successful strategy in, what, what's the year 2020, Monroe? I cannot believe it's a successful strategy to blatantly appeal to racism and think that, you know, running on a David Duke-type sentiment will win. But yeah, got, and that's, it that's, got him there, though. That's what you have to remember. <laughs> it got him there the last time, and so he thinks that he can double down on it well, and get there again. Well, he's being really overt now. Right. Yeah, right. and I, I, mean, I, don't think it's a, I don't think it's a strategy that, that appeals to the kinds of voters he's going to need to put him over the top. It appeals to certain kinds of people in certain kinds of states. One of the most revelatory things about the Trump era for me has been just, just, uh, just sort of processing 
how many more bad people there are in America than I thought there were. You know, it's like many, many millions more people who are okay with this kind of rhetoric than I thought there were. But that doesn't mean it's a majority. I think the real question is whether, you know, how, how Democrats capitalize on this stuff. And I think I do think they learned a lesson in 2016, which is that Hillary Clinton's closing strategy was basically like Donald Trump is a bad man. Um, do you want to look at your children, you know, and have to tell them that Trump is president or see him saying these terrible things about uh, people from Mexico and, and women and all this stuff? And those those were great ads, man. You know, the ads where they had the you know the little girls watching the TV with Donald Trump saying all this disgusting misogynist stuff. It didn't work, you know, um, because the fact that Donald Trump is a bad human being is pretty much like baked into the equation at this point. Um, and, and so my feeling would be Democrats mostly have to let the president, the president's racism, you know, call it out, obviously, you don't want to be silent about it. Um, I'm not saying don't cut a couple of ads, you know, if, if, the, if it makes sense. Um, but, the, but the run on Donald, you know, running on Donald Trump as a racist, Donald Trump is a bad man, um, Donald Trump uh, cheated on his wife, like all these people know that already, you know, um, and it shocked me as much as anybody, but a lot of people didn't care. You know, and so I think they need to keep the focus on it's it's corruption, it's inequality, it's the economy's not working for a lot of people, um, and you know, racism and, and personal morality can and be part of the message, but it can't be the leading thing. Healthcare, yeah, healthcare. Yeah. How far should they go in healthcare? Um, this well, is another debate that is <laughs> raging on this and this show. A day doesn't pass if we don't have this discussion. How far should the Democrats go in healthcare? You know, I mean, I, I feel like Elizabeth Warren has a good has a good needle threading on this issue, which is, she says, obviously, and then Sanders says this, when you really pin Sanders down on this, he also says we need a transition period, right? So I think the position that like, we'd like to move towards um, a system of universal healthcare that is free at the point of service. I wish they would all stop saying single payer. Okay, because when people hear the word single payer, they think the single payer is them. Um, okay, wow. and um, that's a good point. He said we want it. We want universal health care that is free at the point of service. That means when you go to the doctor, you don't pay anything. Yeah, um, we're you know there's going to be a transition period of maybe it's a public option, maybe it looks like something else, maybe we lower the Medicare age. Um, there's a lot of different ways to get there. What I hope is that they don't spend the next um, you know 15 months litigating. Uh, single payer, you know, universal health care versus um, yeah. the Pete Buttigieg option. I hope it doesn't get ugly like that because I think the message of the party needs to be universal health care free at the point of service, right? We can, we can argue about how to get there, right? And I think one of the geniuses of the, of the Sanders 2016 campaign versus the Hillary campaign um, was Hillary was like, I've got this like 17 bullet pointed plan. Um, I've got these wonks in the corner here from Harvard working yeah. on it. Trust me, right? Yeah. Whereas Sanders was like free healthcare. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Um, and so you need to tell people what they're going to get rather than get bogged down in the details of how they're going to get there. I, I, I think they should just say repair Obamacare and let it go at that because it's, it's gotten to a point where Obamacare is loved. And, and wanted and needed it so but it's is well that's the joe biden strategy yeah right, right exactly no, and that's, yeah here. right that's and that's the smart strategy you can move it on uh you know social security which was opposed by the republicans when it was first came in under fdr it was it was socialism et cetera, et cetera. now um if you were to go into appalachia and say we're going to uh, take away your social security you get shot yeah yeah, no, it's not going to work. All right, be, before we uh, take the break and bring in Maureen O'Donnell to totally switch uh, topics, uh, I have to ask you, both of you, uh, David, you said there it's a five-person race. Uh, the debates will be next week. We're going to be talking about them a lot. 
So before we let you out of here, name the five people that you were alluding to when you said it's a five-person race. And then, Monroe, you give us your five. Go. Um, it's Biden, Sanders, Warren, Harris, and Buttigieg. Wait, you know? Biden, Sanders, Warren, Harris. Okay. All right. And nobody else. You know, you've got 20-person debates for a five-person field. Right. It's theater at this point, which they, is fine. They're you know? the only, like theater. They're yeah. the only ones like in, in double digits. Yeah. Uh, and they're the ones who, who are beating Trump yeah. in the polls right now. Even, um, I, I guess it's Buttigieg. So one of them is just like just beating him by one point. But they're all beating Trump in the polling right now. Yeah. So those and those those are the people who Democrats want. Right. Someone who can beat Trump. It's someone who can beat Trump. I would uh, take Buttigieg out of that uh, that that uh, category. I'd say it's a four-person race. I do not think there's any way Buttigieg will win the Democratic nomination. Uh, his support among Black voters, I believe, is zero. Yeah. Okay. Right. Zero. You're not going to win the nomination if you're. Well, it's got to be one. It's got to be one. It's got to well, be one somewhere, well, his, right? His, I don't know. His, his his killer cop resigned. So, yeah, I saw yeah, that. Right. Yeah. Exactly. So, uh, and one more time, I urge absolutely everybody to check out uh, the interview we did on it as a bonus uh, with Henry Davis, a councilman uh, who ran against Pete Buttigieg in South Bend. If you want to understand why his uh, support is at zero, David Ferris, Roosevelt University political science professor, author of "It's Time to Fight Dirty." I'm going to have to bring you back for a whole show on the Electoral College. We're going to do a bonus on the Electoral College. We didn't even get into that today. I'm it's in. an obsession of mine, and of course, the great Monroe. <laughs> Anderson every Wednesday he comes in here talks Trump 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 and uh, we kind of we're kind of hard on old Mueller today but whatever I think he deserved it. got Maureen O'Donnell we're going to shift gears we're going to bring her on talk about some of these great stories she's been writing over the last week about some Chicagoans that you should know about so we'll be right back after this read the Chicago reader to get up to speed on what's what in Chicago culture food Arts and entertainment, weekly concert listings, weekly event listings, the environment, travel. I can continue, but you get the point. And for all of you Chicago political junkies, raw weekly columns on real city politics from Maya Dukmasova and our very own Ben Jarofsky. The Chicago Reader, free to the public in newsstands throughout the city and online at chicagoreader.com. Read it now and be a more informed Chicagoan. Hey there, producer Dennis here. Thanks for finding and listening to the brand new Ben Jarofsky Show. All right, so here's how this works. The Ben Jarofsky Show live streams on the Chicago Sun-Times YouTube channel Tuesday through Friday, 1 until 3 p.m. Once the show is over, you can listen to the replay on our YouTube channel, or we throw it online for you to download by 4 p.m. Where can you download the Ben Jarofsky Show, you may be asking yourself? Well, you may be asking yourself a fantastic question. You can find previous Ben Jarofsky shows and guest interviews through several outlets. The Chicago Sun-Times Online, chicago.suntimes.com. The Chicago Reader Online, chicagoreader.com. And wherever else you listen to your favorite podcasts. Apple Podcasts, Google Play, pick one. Just search for the Ben Jarofsky Show. J-O-R-A. V is in victory, S-K-Y. So, let's recap. Tuesday through Friday, 1 until 3 p.m., live streamed on the Chicago Sun-Times YouTube channel and downloadable by 4 at chicago.suntimes.com, chicagoreader.com, and wherever else you listen to your favorite podcast. Yes, the Ben Jarofsky Show is back. We're live and downloaded. Tell your friends and enjoy the rest of the show. 
Our friends and co-hosts at the Chicago Sun-Times are offering you, yes, you, our listeners, an exclusive deal on unlimited digital access to all, that's A-L-L, all of the stories you love. Unlock every feature, video, and podcast just like the Ben Jarofsky Show by signing up now for a digital subscription. For a limited time only, you can lock in our lowest rate yet, only $29.99 for a full year of all the news you need to know. Stay up to date on breaking stories. Get the deep dives and investigations from Sun-Times reporters. Cheer for the big games with the best sports team in the city. And go deep inside City Hall with best-in-class political reporting. $29.99. I said $29.99 for a full year of unlimited access. I checked online. You can't do better than that. Take advantage of this exclusive deal now at suntimes.com slash Ben. Did you know that 40% of the people in Illinois opt to be cremated? Well, it's true. And Chicagoland Cremation Options honors their wishes by providing cremation services directly to the general public. Chicagoland Cremation Options provides an affordable, ethical, and easy cremation arrangement, whether in person or online. Save thousands and streamline the process by going directly to Chicagoland Cremation Options. It's a family-owned business operated by my good friend, Douglas Klein. Here's how you reach them. Chicagoland Cremation Options.com. One more time. Chicago LandCremationOptions.com. Today's Ben Jarofsky Show is brought to you in part by Green Element Resale. It's a thrift shop located at 6241 North Broadway. And people, it is awesome. Furniture, appliances, lamps, books, clothes, electronics, and so much more. And it's a thrift shop that helps bring you the Ben Jarofsky Show. So if you're ever on Broadway between Granville and Devon, Tell them thank you and go check out Green Element Resale, 6241 North Broadway, and find more information at greenelementresale.com. I'll read the address slowly, 6241 North Broadway. Head to Green Element Resale and save so much money. Listen to all that money we're saving. Welcome back to the Ben Jarofsky Show. Mr. Jarofsky, take us home. Yes, indeed. That's super cool music. means We're almost done, but we're not done yet. In fact, we have a new guest sitting in the studio, the great, the legendary Maureen O'Donnell, obituary writer for the Chicago Sun-Times. I've always said the only good thing about dying is that maybe Maureen O'Donnell write your obituary. (laughs) Uh, Hi, Ben. (laughs) And uh, welcome back, Maureen. She's a a good friend of the show. Uh, Before I talk to her about some of the Chicagoans you should know about folks, that's really why I do this, because there's some really uh, great people I always complain about the city of Chicago, Maureen. I'm always complaining Mm -hmm. about our mayor, our Mm -hmm. alderman. But there's some really wonderful people that live in the city of Chicago. Unsung uh, heroes. uh, Unsung heroes in many cases. Mm -hmm. And uh, in one case, we're going to talk about Michael Flug. I knew the man. Uh, but so many of them, people I don't know, and I read about them, I learn about them when I read your uh, mm-hmm. your stories, your profiles of them uh, after they've died. And I was like, oh, dang, mm-hmm. I wish I had met that person uh, after I read Maureen's account of their life. Mm-hmm. Before we bring on Maureen on, D, you got an update for us? Uh, absolutely. First off, find us on social media at Benny J Show, B-E-N-N-Y, the letter J Show on both Twitter and Facebook. Give us a like, follow, share, review, whatever you want to do. If you watch us on YouTube, subscribe, hit the like 
like button, all that good stuff. Tell your friends. And also on um, Instagram, we're the Ben Jarofsky Show. Ben's in charge of that one. So uh, <laughs> say hey to Ben over there. Uh, How's the Instagram page uh, looking, yeah, by the way? Uh, booming. Doing booming. Good? Yeah, me and social media, man. <laughs> so there, that's one update. And the other update, after nearly seven hours, the Mueller hearings have concluded. Isn't that right, uh, Robert Mueller? That's correct. All right, that's correct. Yeah. That's correct. So uh, we got one more piece of audio here to play from the uh, hearing number two. Uh, it says here um, he was talking with, and moments ago, Mueller said in response to a question from a Democratic congresswoman that it was, quote, generally fair to say that Trump's written answers were not always truthful. Oh, we're learning a lot here on this one today. Huh? Let's hear uh, from the uh, testimony. Here we go. Okay, anytime Director now. Mueller, isn't it fair to say that the president's written answers were not only inadequate and incomplete because he didn't answer many of your questions, but where he did, his answers showed that he wasn't always being truthful? Uh, there, uh, I would say, uh, generally. Generally. Director Mueller is one thing. All right, there sure, we go. I'll tell you what, what a heck of a witness. Good. Get, say it. Declare something. State it. I agree 100% with David Ferris uh, that uh, Robert Mueller ducked and dodged and avoided and let the Republicans just pound away at him. Sort of, he's not, and he's not a Democrat, so I can't blame Democrats on him. Uh, but it, it kind of reminds me of the way the Democrats behave. The Republicans played to win, and Democrats play. I don't know what they do. They play to run around and lose weight. I don't know why, what they're even in doing. But Mueller acted like a Democrat up there. Well, I'm just going to let you beat me up, and I'm not going to defend myself or anything. Robert just, Mueller, the Ben Jarofsky show said you ducked and dodged during the uh, testimony. Is that correct? That's correct. Oh, okay. <laughs> yeah, well, at least he agrees with me on that. All right, Marina Donalds is not going to talk about Mueller at all. Instead, we're going to talk about somebody uh, well worth remembering, remembering a, a really beautiful piece you wrote on Sunday uh, about Michael Flug. Tell mm-hmm. folks about Michael Flug. Well, Michael Flug, I think, was uh, somebody you should know, as uh, TV reporter Harry Porterfield used to say. Um, he was the senior archivist at the Woodson Library at 95th and Halstead. Mm -hmm. And that sounds like kind of a dry, sterile job, but he was responsible for um, many of the treasures in the second greatest repository of African-American memorabilia and documents and history in the nation. The Vivian Harsh Collection, where he worked, is the second biggest collection of African-American historical treasures behind the Schomburg Library in New York City. And so, Michael, you could walk in there whether you were a grade school student or somebody researching your family genealogy or Sarah Paretsky, a phenomenal best-selling mystery writer who was doing research for some of her books. Uh, Didn't matter who you were. Michael treated everyone with respect according to friends and people who dealt with him. He treated all the treasures with respect so that people like Timuel Black, the 100 plus historian, great historian in Chicago, they gifted their um, their archives to him uh, for posterity. And Michael would put on his archivist's gloves and go over and start leafing through treasures. And he knew where everything was. Mm. Boxes and boxes, hundreds of linear feet of personal um, personal writings, um, 
uh, early stage manuscripts um, from Richard Wright and um, Langston Hughes, um, all the personal documents of Reverend Addie Wyatt, um, uh, com- uh, the, the longtime photographer for the Chicago Defender, um, uh, Chester Commodore. He even had the collection of the man who invented famous Amos cookies, mm-hmm. Wally Amos mm-hmm. of uh, the chocolate chip empire. Uh, he he had all of these things, and he would go through it when it was given to the Vivian Harsh collection, and he would create something that archivists call finding aids. So he'd write up what he found, and then you could go in and go, I'd like to know about when Wally Amos first got the idea for ch- the chocolate chips. And he could go right to the correct box or drawer, open it up, boom, you had all your research. And he was, you know, the, he was... He was somebody that was really a VIP in the world of black history. Juliana Richardson, who founded the History Makers website, which is a great, great website of oral histories. I think they have more than 10,000 at this point. Um, Juliana Richardson said there was nobody like him. Paretsky thought the world of him and created um, a very able archivist in one of her books as an homage to Michael Flug. Uh, and in, in fact, there were African-American people who thought he was mixed race because of everything he knew and the respect he showed. Well, let's talk about that for mm-hmm. uh, a, a moment. Mm-hmm. Uh, we live in, in very uh, d- troubled, divisive times. Uh, anybody who listens to the show, reads the newspapers, listen to the president of the United States. Uh, he's always uh, trying for political ends to uh, inflame. Uh, hostilities between whites and blacks and uh, exploit uh, all these fears and prejudice and bigotry. Uh, when I read y- your uh, obituary, your, your your profile of Michael Flug, I just, in my mind, there was a contrast to what was going on on the front pages of the paper, mm-hmm. uh, accounting what, uh, mm-hmm. recounting what Donald Trump had been doing. This is a man, a white man, mm-hmm. a Jewish guy mm-hmm. from Brooklyn, yep. uh, who found his way to the south side of Chicago and dedicated his professional life mm-hmm. to preserving black history. Yes. And I don't think there was any evidence uh, whatsoever that anybody, uh, any black person in the city of Chicago resented him in any way because he wasn't black. Mm-hmm. Uh, in fact, he seemed the appreciation for what he had done for the, his life's work was profoundly deep. Uh, yeah, he had walked the walk. He had his wife, Suzanne French, uh, told me that he'd been, uh, as a teenager, he got in trouble uh, in Brooklyn. He was uh, in the parlance of the day. He was... Um, in danger of becoming a juvenile delinquent. He actually appeared, I think, in court a few times, and he wound up, it may have been at the advice of a judge, but he wound up getting involved with CORE, the Congress of Congress of Racial Equality. This was the group that was um, uh, helped promote the Freedom Riders, and they held many, many um, sit-ins, protests for equal rights, uh, for being able to sit at that lunch counter. And Michael Fluke was in the thick of it in the bad old days. He got arrested 26 or 27 times. Once he got arrested, uh, I think at one of the Carolinas, just for saying, brothers and sisters, I'm happy to be here. Boom, arrested. <laughs> so many protesters from court got arrested that day. Yeah. Court didn't have the money to bail them out, so he spent three weeks in jail. He, uh, you know, he was involved in voter registration, and he said it was that these were the things that made him very proud. And his, I think, his father's side was 
from Poland by way of Iraq. Uh, his mother's side was also politically active, and it was a very loud dinner table. He said, uh, his wife said that he was brought up thinking that the two uh, political parties in the country were socialist and communist. Uh, and he felt sort of a kinship yeah. with oppressed people the world over. He absolutely loved vacationing in County Kerry in the town of Dingle. It's this windswept peninsula that juts out into the wild Atlantic Ocean. And it was also the setting for a gorgeous 1970s movie called Ryan's Daughter. Really, it's a great movie, but the scenery is also a star. And he not only loved the scenery, but he felt sort of a kinship and knew a lot about Irish history and Ireland's um, effort to be a free, sovereign nation. And he felt a kinship there. He could talk to anybody in a pub about Irish history, and he knew his stuff. Uh, on a brief mm-hmm. tangent, Maureen O'Donnell, for 10 trivia points, who was the director of Ryan's Daughter? Uh, David Lean? And Stanley Kubrick. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> stuff I know. Uh, I'm not worthy. Yeah, <laughs> That's a Kubrick film? Yeah. It's so warm and human. Yeah. Uh, uh, oh, what a dig. Um <laughs> All right, going back to Michael Flug. Uh, I can't open the door, Hal. Uh, I no, that's twenty oh one. The space Odyssey. Uh, yeah. Uh, d- by the way, I just saw the Shining. Uh, did I talk to you about this? I saw no. the Shining. Oh my God! It's run, don't walk to watch it again. It's it's just as good today as it was back in nineteen eighty when it came out. Right. I'm not a fan of that film. But that's another show. Maureen O'Donnell. <laughs> <laughs> How could you not be a fan of The Shining? I thought Jack Nicholson's performance ruined the film. The words cannot get out of my mouth. I'm not alone. (laughs) By the way, people don't know this about Maureen. She's a big movie buff Mm -hmm. uh, and something she shares with me. I think Nicholson was, you know, when I watched it again, here we are in a tangent with a tangent. Mm -hmm. I know we have to get back. Focus, Mm -hmm. man, focus. But uh, I thought when I saw it again, which, which just recently I was impressed by that scene that he has at the bar uh, where it's an imagine, well, whatever. Anyway, mm-hmm. I, I was impressed by his performance. Mm-hmm. Well, let's put that aside. Okay. And I know, will you be running out to see um, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood? Uh, is that on your list? <sighs> Not I a don't Tarantino know. fan. It's, you know, t- that's a whole other show. All right, another yeah. show. Maureen yeah. O'Donnell and mm-hmm. Tarantino. Although I know Richard Roper liked it. Yes, mm-hmm. and I will be seeing it tomorrow. All mm-hmm. right, anyway, uh, let's go back to, uh, to Michael Fluke. I love, uh, I, I remember, I was one of the many um, people who came into the library looking for assistance at some mm-hmm. point in the 90s, and you're absolutely correct. I, I was uh, just a, a lowly guy writing for the reader, and he treated me like I was a visiting scholar from Columbia or something. Very nice, nice. very helpful, yeah. a wonderful guy, a great conversationalist, mm-hmm. fun to talk to, yeah. had a New York accent. It was, it was just a, it, he was a good person to know. Yeah. But this is so, so hilarious that it was in your story uh, that some people said, oh, it must be, because uh, he knew so much about black history yeah. and black culture. Oh, he must have been a, a light-skinned black guy. There was just yeah. so Chicago. And it wasn't just what he knew from the history books. He knew social strata. He yeah. knew the women in the links. He knew who was married to who. He knew who was formerly married to who. He knew layer upon layer upon layer of Chicago's movers and, movers and shakers for decades. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. And he had that embedded. So people go, hey, it must be a light-skinned black guy. Mm-hmm. It's like, what's up? That is Maureen O'Donnell. That is very Chicago. Uh, yeah. And it's worldview. So I urge everybody to check out uh, uh, the obituary to uh, Michael Flew. Yeah. Oh, and the other thing. This, this is the other thing about a Maureen O'Donnell uh, profile. It's not just about the person's like 
professional life. So in this case, he has this tremendous life as an archivist. Then she takes a deep dive, just takes a little tangent, if you will, uh, about the person's personal life. And the thing at the end, that I, the riff that you went on that I really enjoyed was his love for a different kind of music. Mm-hmm. He loved Tina Turner. Yeah. <laughs> I'm jealous of him. He was very proud. He saw her in the yeah. 60s, 70s, 80s, and 90s. Yeah, he had that string yeah, on. Yeah. Every and, decade, he yeah. went and saw uh, Tina Turner. Yeah. I, after reading your story, I went and did my own article about him for the reader, which I don't know if it's run yet. And I, uh, I talked to his, uh, wife and she was pointing out that he also liked country music. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, uh, and you know, he had this vast interest in opera. This great. That just goes to that, that equanimity he had. It didn't matter if you were a sixth grader or you were a visiting scholar from Yale, you know, the Jacqueline Gouldsby from Yale and Devarian Baldwin from Trinity College in Hartford, all, all these extremely acclaimed versatile professor said you know he he had the goods he was a collaborator not just a researcher what do you mean by that he helped them write their books um don hayner a former top editor at the sun times has a book coming out this fall about a gentleman named binga the rise and fall of chicago's first black banker this book is this could be a movie this book it's it's got everything it's got a claim it's got his downfall and um he you know don said he he was he was very important to the research and the creation of that book which he's been working on for years well mm-hmm. that's one of the things about a librarian uh that i find very appreciative they're some of the most generous people in the world because the librarians aren't going to get the credit uh, for the product, mm-hmm. the writer will get the credit. It's yeah. the writer's name, and the, but the librarian, just by virtue of the job they have, they will help you. They, you're right. They will yeah. lead. You'll be your collaborator. Yeah, the, par- the partner. Yeah, they'll yeah. be your partner. Help you lead you to the information you need to find. And he's in a lot of forwards and in a lot of acknowledgments in books. And I had one of these weird you things that happen to you in the universe i went to a farmer's market in evanston and i walk up to one of the booths and there's this poster that says r.i.p michael flug and i talked to the farmer his name is john first and i said is this the michael flug who was the renowned researcher and archivist at the carter woodson library and he said yes he said john uh, michael used to help me harvest my wine sap apples he loved wine sap apples so everyone has so many sides to them yeah yeah everybody has so many sides yeah uh and another obituary that just broke today i saw it for the uh when i was coming in today lois willie mm-hmm. who's a legend among chicago journalists mm-hmm. and i did not lo- know lois Willie. i knew who she was mm-hmm. uh she passed she was about 87 years old talk yeah. a little bit about the legacy of lois willie well uh lois um was someone who as a child, uh, her parents were always kind of quizzing her and expecting her and her brother to excel in school. Um, grew up in Arlington Heights. Her dad was from Germany. He fled um, pre-Hitler Germany as things were starting to heat up there. He was an architect. Rebuilt his life in Arlington Heights by becoming a bricklayer. Eventually had his own business. Her mother was also a woman of letters. She didn't work outside the home, but she was up on all current events. And Lois wanted to break into newspapers. She went to Northwestern University and she got a job um, at the Daily News working for Peg Zwecker, the fashion editor, head of the women's section, and also discoverer of the designer 
Halston, who epitomized the graceful ease of the 1970s with his captions, (laughs) was a regular at Studio 54, rubbing shoulders with Bianca Jagger and Marisa Berenson and Ryan O'Neill. And uh, Mrs. Wecker found him uh, designing hats, I think, uh, at a little atelier in Chicago. And so... You know a lot about uh, Zwecker. I th- well, I'm, I think if uh, I think I'm sort of a frustrated fashion writer, uh, yeah. and uh, she that, was that she whole was, riff you went on was uh, very she was fashion. an amazing, amazing woman. It yeah. was Mrs. Wecker. She was um, the mother of Bill Zwecker, mm-hmm. wife of uh, I think a count or baron from Europe who also fled to get away from the Nazis. And Mrs. Wecker um, was a great sort of inspirer of women. So Lois worked for her, and as soon as she could, she segued over to the main newsroom, away from the women's section. I believe she was one of two women in the newsroom at a time when uh, she gave, Lois gave an interview to something called Chicago Women's Business, Chicago Women's Leaders. She said at the time, a lot of the men had a bottle of whiskey in their desk. There was a lot of overindulging. It was routine for men to throw garbage cans, uh, throw typewriters, get into arguments and fist fights, and uh, go away for a few days to recover from a bender. <laughs> and it was all acceptable. Uh, but she kind of segued in there and decided to kind of go under the radar and just rise by excellence. Mike Royko said she had no flaws. She could report. She could write. She could write editorials. She could analyze. There, in the interview um, with the Chicago women's business leaders, uh, Lois got asked about a comment from Mike Royko. They were both covering the Our Lady of Angels fire in 1958, which killed 98 school children and three nuns and changed fire codes across the nation. And apparently, Pat was so busy and so resourceful. She was bobbing around interviewing parents, firefighters, victims. Royko thought that there were like seven or eight women reporters running around. That's how adept she was. And so she rose rose through the Sun-Times, the Tribune, the Chicago Daily News. She won not one but two Pulitzers. And great investigative reporter. In 1963, doctors at Cook County Hospital mm-hmm. could not tell women about contraceptives. That, you know, if the women, if women had had a number of children or they had health problems and they wanted to know about birth control, you know, if she said, is there any way I can avoid getting pregnant again? They had to refuse to answer her. So Lois Willie looked into this and it was, she couldn't get very far with it because the hierarchy, the editorial hierarchy was largely made up of Roman Catholic men. Uh, But according to Lois in an interview that she gave to, um, uh, Washington Press Club. She said she'd wanted to write about this problem for a long time, but it wasn't until her editor developed stomach ulcers and a deputy editor, Bob Rose, filled in, and he said, "Run with it." And within a day, within three months after her birth control series, the Illinois Public Aid Commission agreed to pay for birth control for women. Yeah, that was a mm-hmm. great contribution mm-hmm. she made. Nineteen sixty-three, yeah. much different time than mm-hmm. it is uh, now. So mm-hmm. Lois Willie, a legend in Chicago journalism. Mm-hmm. Uh, when I moved to town, uh, Maureen, I, re- I remember she was at the Daily News back then. Mm-hmm. And she was one of these. I was I was a lowly copy boy, and 
there were people like Royco and Lois Willie, <laughs> you know, hanging around. I'd be like watching them in awe and everything. And uh, uh, she did also a lot of stories about uh, uh, the lake uh, yes. and the, the need to uh, keep uh, development off the lake. Yes, she wrote a book, Forever Open and Free, about the need to keep it open, to keep Daniel Burnham's plan intact. Mm-hmm. And Anne-Marie Lipinski, who used to be the top editor at the Tribune, and she's now the head of the Neiman Foundation at Harvard, she said she managed to look at these hard stories with, uh, with you know, gimlet-eyed view of what to do to make things right. But she would wrap everything in writing filled with compassion and grace. So, And people say... I. Copy, there's a cop, former copy boy on Facebook today saying she always had a smile for us, you know, and people don't forget that. Yeah. That is Lois Willie we're mm-hmm. talking about. Uh, these are some re- classic stories that Maureen O'Donnell has written. I'd like to bring her on to talk about it from time to time. Lois Willie one, it was just the one that popped up today, but Michael Flug, I urge everybody uh, to go check that out. Mm-hmm. F-L-U-G, Michael Flug just passed away. Uh, to me, I, I, the story I wrote, he's the anti-Trump. Uh, his whole life is dedicated to really good and important things, building a better understanding relationship between blacks and whites. You couldn't ask for a more important issue in our country today. Michael Flug uh, passed away. How old was he? Seventy. Uh, he was in his seventies, a little yeah. over seventy-five. 75, yeah. yeah, yeah. Too young, mm-hmm. too young. Yeah. Anyway, Maureen O'Donnell, thank you so much for stopping by. I appreciate it. Keep up the good work. Thank you for having me. And uh, twist her arm and get her to go see Once Upon a Time in uh, Hollywood. And next time she comes on, uh, <laughs> we'll she, argue about movies. We'll, we'll argue about <laughs> movies. I'm looking forward to that one. I'll defend The Shining uh, for years to come. Uh, Maureen O'Donnell uh, is my guest in the studio now. Also, want to thank. Uh, Monroe Anderson, he stops by every Wednesday. And David Ferris from Roosevelt University, political scientist. Check out his book, It's Time to Fight Dirty. Uh, Leah did a great job, as she always did. And, of course, the man, the myth, the legend behind the board, the pride and joy of Alton, Illinois. And as Maureen O'Donnell will tell you, back home in Alton, they call him White Lightning. Give yourself a raise. <laughs> take it out of petty cash. See you tomorrow, everybody. Remember, you can download previous Ben Jarofsky shows at both Chicago Sun-Times and Chicago Reader websites, chicago.suntimes.com forward slash pages forward slash Jarofsky, chicagoreader.com, and wherever else you download your favorite podcast. We're on Spotify. Tell your friends. Follow us on social media at Benny J Show, B-E-N-N-Y, the letter J show on both Facebook and Twitter, the Ben Jarofsky Show on Instagram. And hey, downloaders, we live stream this show Tuesdays through Fridays, 1 until 3 p.m. Central Time at both Chicago Reader websites and uh, Chicago Sun-Times websites and the Sun-Times YouTube channel. Have you ever wondered how to say good morning in Italian? Or what is goodbye in French? You can ask Alexa. Just say, what is happy birthday in German? Or how do you say hello in Japanese? Do you want to know how to say I love you in Spanish? Ask Alexa and start learning a new language today.